this happens to me every time i have the intro document i can open it <laughs> i just don't do it hello pod people i am katie and i'm sam and this is real lit books booze and b movies with your favorite tipsy cuties Uh, we cover classic literature and under-discussed movies. I am the resident cinephile. You know me. I've been on all these fucking shows that Allentown Presents does. You know, it's your all girl. Amazing shows. It's your girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm here to talk to you about some. Um, we'll call them B movies, but sometimes they're bangers and sometimes they're just shit shows. So, uncut gems. Uncut <laughs> yeah uncut gems but not actually the movie uncut gems because that movie won oscars and we don't watch oscar movies out here right exactly that a movie we will never cover specifically on this podcast <laughs> i'd like to because i like adam sandler but also it did really good and was beloved by critics so it doesn't fit our mo <laughs> spotlight series yeah we'll put we'll put it on another show <laughs> and then Very sam good. over here being a oh, big brain genius my, my big brain genius vibes yep. over here. Yeah, I um I teach English in college. I don't know why I like suddenly forgot how to podcast right now. It's because for it's some reason we started and I like am still I'm still in the vibe of before we pressed record. That's <laughs> fine. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I teach English and I'm a big brain genius. Katie already said it. That's fine. Yep, I did. That's exactly that's all you need to know. And we're gonna talk yeah. about some great literature. Oh I'm getting um, drunk. For the first time in a while. We haven't been drunk in a while. Yeah. Um, maybe that that potentially has something to do with my scatteredness. Um yeah, we'll see I how am... this goes. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um because it's going to be interesting, because today we're talking about Fahrenheit 451, the book that you think that you know and you really don't know at all. Um, I read this book like Katie in um, high school and reread it again in college, I think. And Do they still let high school kids read this or is it a banned book now? I don't understand. What world are we living in? <laughs> um, in certain places potentially no um for us it wasn't assigned to us it was um sorry i'm like having difficulties trying to figure out what is the big thing on my screen and the little thing okay there we go um no when when we were in high school when i was in high school i should say um it wasn't assigned to us but we had um things in our English classes when we were juniors and seniors, where one of our um, grade things that we had to do was we had lists of um, books that we had to read on our own time and do like reports on. And we had to do like a certain amount of them like during the, you know, year. And I read this one for one of those sessions. Like I read some of a bunch of classics for those sessions one of them was this one and uh revisiting it now um 
not really even just because of the world that we're living in, but as an adult, as, as an adult more than my undergrad in college, even um, as a, <laughs> a hyper adult, it's, uh, we're going to get into it. Let's just dive in. Let's just jump right in and we'll unpack the things that happen in this book and the person who wrote it as we move forward. So um, if y'all didn't know, this book is about censorship. So you all should have very clear ideas at this point, what Sam and my idea about censorship is. Yes, exactly. Don't censor anything. Don't. Um, don't even even if you even if you think it's really really bad even if you think it's the worst thing that's ever been created nope don't do it yeah okay fahrenheit 451 1953 dystopian novel by the american writer ray bradbury okay we're gonna jump in this is the story so our main character immediately established is guy montag That's his name, Guy Montag, okay? So when I'm saying Guy in this story, it is very specifically the dude. He is 30 years old. He is a fireman. He is not the fireman that you think of when you hear the word fireman. He doesn't put fires out. He sets fires. His job is to burn books and the houses that the books reside in okay so we learn this only through like context clues of reading the narratives descriptions of the events that are occurring just fyi so he's coming home from work one day he's walking he like has gotten off of the subway or the you know metro or whatever and he is walking from the station the rest of his way home and he runs into his new neighbor his new neighbor is a 16-year-old named Clarice. And at first, she's seemingly a little apprehensive of him that she's run into a fireman, but she quickly doesn't mind too much. Uh, and they talk as they walk back to their respective houses. And this talk reveals a lot about the wrongness of this setting because she's asking him questions and it unnerves him not even necessarily about the content of the questions, but the fact that she's asking questions. She's too curious. She thinks too much. And it's about like pretty mundane stuff. Like, hmm, people who drive fast must see things in only blurs. Or like, did you did you ever look at the moon and think there's a man in the moon? I like to think there's a man in the moon. And I like walking around a lot at night. And like my parents and my uncle and I sit up in the evenings and we like talk about stuff. I mean, that's wild, right? That kind of stuff. And it, it is wild. It is wild to Guy Montag. So it is setting the, the cognitive dissonance here uh, for the reader reading this going, oh, we are in a very different setting than what we are used to right so he essentially walks her to the door and she parts by asking him if he's happy and she doesn't wait for his response it's just kind of like a throwaway thing and she like runs into the house and she has affected him even just with this little tiny time that they have spent together he cannot think of anything else now because he's not happy the beginning of this 
um, book always makes me think of the movie Pleasantville mm-hmm. and how like the tiny drop of differentness in their in the anyone's psyche makes them start to become colorful uh-huh. I was like yep this is that's so fucking cool Pleasantville by the way unsung movie definitely yeah. a movie we should cover on this podcast Pleasantville's a fucking banger yeah um yeah it is very Pleasantville in the sense of exactly that where what we would not consider abnormal whatsoever <clears throat> even the tiniest bit of something that is not of the norm severely throws guy montag off um and he cannot think of anything else now except talking to clarice even that tiny little amount because he's not happy he realizes he goes into his bedroom uh after he comes home from walking with clarice his wife is lying in the darkness um and she has little earbud radios that she always listens to and this is very typical for her so the narrative makes it clear she's she never doesn't have her little earbuds in they're called seashells by the way so he walks in and it's all pitch dark and she's laying in bed she has her little earbuds in and he accidentally trips on something on the floor in the darkness so he takes out his lighter to you know be able to see and he realizes it's a bottle of sleeping pills that was full this morning and empty now and uh he screams there's like a bunch of jets that like fly overhead so it kind of drowns out his screaming but he screams and he reaches for the phone to call medical emergency people so they come and they pump her stomach and they also flush her blood and replace it all question mark question mark that's interesting yes it's interesting that you would give a blood transfusion to get rid of like an overdose a cool concept cool idea not what they actually do but cool idea like it would help because you'd be fucked up if you took that much sleeping pills and the fact that it happens in like an hour like they're not there that long but they have this big snake thing and they just like suction it onto her face and they're like all right we pumped her stomach we flushed her blood she ain't got no none of her old blood no more it's all brand new blood they're not even doctors they're just called handymen um and they're like all right Mm." (laughs) and they're like (laughs) right katie did the the like motion with her hand of like the reading rainbow (laughs) um like star like the more you know yeah um (laughs) so they're like all right she's done she's gonna be really hungry when she wakes up uh but she should be good as new now so hey keep her quiet and everything should be fine which is an ominous statement and he is very obviously disturbed by this incident so he um doesn't really know what to do with himself for the rest of the night now that she's sleeping he can hear the neighbors still talking clarice's house um so he goes out and like listens to them for a moment and then comes back in and he goes to bed but when he wakes up Mildred, which is his wife's name, Millie Mildred, she's already awake and she is in the kitchen eating, of course, and she does not remember what happened. So she still has her earbuds in and the way that she functions in reality is she always has her earbuds in. She never takes the little seashells out. She just reads the lips of other people rather than listening to them. 
<laughs> what the fuck? Why? Because she will never take the earbuds out ever. This so, is so crazy. So um, she doesn't remember what happened and he doesn't tell her. He just kind of lets her misunderstand. Um, she makes this assumption of there being like, oh, we must have had a party. I must have got drunk and passed out or something. That must be why I feel like this. And he just kind of like lets her have that misunderstanding. So later on, he's going to work and uh, Mildred is in the living room. She's reading a new script. I guess she's an actress. It's not very clear if she's reading this script to act it herself or like as like preparation for the program that she's going to be watching of it later. It's unclear, but he does tell her what really happened, but she doesn't believe it. She just says like, oh, I'd never do something like that. So she's in their TV parlor. Their TV parlor is three TV walls. Just the walls are TV. That's it. <laughs> um, I mean, that's kind wants, of the dream. Well, she wants the fourth one. She wants a full TV room. Um, but it's expensive. I bet. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> I mean, if I had three walls that were just TVs, I would have one wall for Otis to play video games and one wall for movies and one wall for just sports in the background and ray bradbury would be terrified of you for a variety of reasons but for that being one of those reasons but we'll get he would of course he would um so he leaves um to go to work clarice is outside she's walking around in the rain and they talk again, and she's just as striking to him as she was yesterday. And uh, she tells him about how they make her see a psychiatrist because she enjoys walking around outside and thinking. That is literally the reasons why they make her see a psychiatrist. That Those are what she says. Yep, she likes walking around outside and she likes thinking too much. <laughs> so she's seeing a psychiatrist. So she asks him why he chose to be a fireman because... Um, she doesn't think it fits him and he actually pays attention to her and other people don't do that especially firemen this is her giving us this information and i mean he doesn't really have an answer and so she leaves and he is just as disturbed as he was the last time they talked and he goes to work there is a robot quote unquote dog it doesn't sound like a dog based on the description it sounds like a huge mechanical like spider but they call it a dog they call it the hound um and it is a robot this this hound freaks guy out because even though it's supposed to be uh just unfeeling etc because it's a robot anytime um he comes near it it reacts like it dislikes him like a real dog that doesn't like him like he'll come up and it'll start growling at him <laughs> and that should not be a thing because like it's a robot should not be what's going on so he does not like that it freaks him out and he wonders whether someone found out about what he has hidden an event in his home and whether they then told the hound about it and that's why the hound dislikes him that's what we get from the narrative and then it's moved on from so two weeks go by of him pretty much just walking to and from the subway with clarice they 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 become friends he enjoys talking to her um, she talks a lot about things uh, that people just don't ever talk about 
apparently now in this setting. And then she's suddenly gone. And at work, he is distracted because of this. He's thinking about the thing that he apparently has in the vent. And he's thinking about Clarice. And he's thinking about some old man that he met in a park. And he asks the firemen, his fellow firemen, whether they actually used to prevent fires and not start them. He asks this because it's something Clarice mentioned. And they show him the histories, the quote-unquote histories, which establish in 1780 the first fireman, and that fireman has always burned books, and that first fireman, by the way, was Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. And anyway, they get an alarm, and so they go off to be firemen. And their alarm is an old woman who has a bunch of books in her attic. And she insists that they'll never have her books. And they're like, okay, well, we're burning them literally right now. And she's like, yeah, you'll never have them. And they're like, okay, well, lady, you got to get out because like we're burning the house. And she's like, nope. And in fact, she, they've like doused the place and she just whips out a match and is like, no, I got this. You can leave. I'm not leaving. And everyone's like, no, no, bruh, bruh, like this is not safe. And she's like, did I stutter? And so they run out. (laughs) A guy tries to get her out, but she refuses. So they have to run away. So she does not take them down in the blaze with her. And she sets herself and her entire house and books on fire. And in this mess, Guy has spirited away one of the books in his coat. So he goes home with the book and he hides it under his pillow and his wife is in bed listening to her seashells like normal and he thinks about how she wants her life filled with chaos and sound and he cannot make sense of that. He like asks her when they actually met for the first time and neither of them can remember and he just feels immensely distanced from her. So he asks her if she knows anything about where Clarice has been. And she says that, oh, she forgot to tell him. She thinks Clarice was run over by a car and is dead. And the whole family has moved out now. What the fuck? The fact that there are cars in this world allowed there are allowed to be driven, but aren't but books aren't allowed and free thought is not really allowed doesn't really make sense because I feel like I am the freest I am ever I ever am when I'm driving just aimlessly (laughs) but you don't have the ability to um so when you're driving really fast it requires your ability it requires you to be heightened like you're your senses are heightened. This is legitimately a plot point. It's why I'm actually talking about this and not yeah. just kind of like brushing that off as a comment because everyone in this world drives like a maniac. And it's one of the things that Guy Montag hates and it's why he doesn't like driving with his wife. Mildred loves driving. And when she's when you're driving, your, your adrenaline is so high you're, you have heightened awareness. So you cannot honestly be thinking critical thoughts. And so they're encouraged to drive like maniacs. They routinely drive 
no matter where they're going, they're constantly driving between like 60 and 120 miles an hour, just everywhere, all the time. There's no like speed limits or things like that. He is obviously very upset about this. In the morning, he feels ill. He oversleeps. And Mildred doesn't understand like how or why he's sick. This has never happened before, but he is, he wants to call in to work. And his captain at the fire station, Captain Beatty, actually comes to him because he is actually apparently late. <laughs> and uh, he had like a, like a double shift that day or the early shift that day or something. So he's not only overslept, but he's now actually late, which has never happened for him. So now he's freaking out that his captain has come because of course he has a book under his pillow if we've not forgotten that. And Beatty comes to talk to him. The conversation goes like this. Without saying it in obvious words, Beatty is essentially like, I know everything. I know that you have thoughts. I know that you have a book. So listen, books are bad. They make you unhappy because you think too much. And that's why your friend Clarice was messed up. Like, don't you get that? Because thinking too much makes you unhappy, which is why we burn books. So have the book for 24 hours. And if you haven't burned it yourself, we'll do it for you. Have a good night. I'll see you back at work tomorrow because you will come back. So again, I need to stress, he doesn't say this outright. But this is very obviously what he is saying in the conversation. The reader reading this reads their conversation and the way Beatty talks and like how he insinuates stuff and some of the little rants that he goes on. And it's very clear that this is precisely what Beatty is saying to him. So when this is happening, by the way, Mildred is actually trying to straighten Guy's pillow and she finds the book. And she doesn't pull it out and she just runs out of the room. So naturally after Beatty leaves, they're both freaking out. And Guy shows Mildred what he's been hiding. And it's not just the book under his pillow. He goes to the vent, which he's been thinking about. And this whole time, the thing he's been thinking of that he's hiding in the vent is more books, shocker, like 20 of them at this point. So now he's like, okay, we have to do this together because whether you wanted to or not, I've, I've been an idiot and I've put you in this too, because this is your house too. So we've got to do this together. So you know what? He said, we have 24 hours. Let's read. Let's like read the books. And if it's like the captain said, we'll burn them together. Like, I promise you, we will throw them in our incinerator together. And here is where we get the most unrealistic part of this whole story. Okay. In a society where people were never taught to read and literally punished if they do read, this man and this woman are going to read by themselves 20 books in a night. Are these like, if I gave a mouse a cookie books, because I can't even read like Harry Potter at one in a night. And, and I read I'm pretty, very glad. I read a lot. Like not a lot. I'm very glad I, you I mentioned read, this. I read frequently enough that I am a decent reader, and it still takes me a while to re- get through one book. Like, mm-hmm. and depending on the book, like I'm reading 
one of the Stephen Kings right now, a, a Dark Tower series. And every like three pages of that book takes me like a whole ass hour because it's so dense <laughs> and full of information. Oh yeah. You know me, I read all the time. And I was just, when we were recording Madame Bovary, I was like, how is this book so long? It's not, but there's some shit that's so dense that you're just like, please, wh- why? How? Yeah. So these motherfuckers read 20 books in a day to get, so 10 books a piece in a day. They better, and they don't read. They don't ever read. So they're literally starting from scratch. This had to be like chicka chicka boom boom and Alexander <laughs> and the no good Terroroy. Very bad day. Like this is some children. <laughs> very hungry shit. caterpillar. Yeah, <laughs> very hungry caterpillar because there's no fucking way these people read anything of substance in 24 hours if they had never read before. I'm really glad you bring this up because it is actually a an important plot point of the story and B, one of the biggest misconceptions of this book. Ding, 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 we're gonna hit it right now, which is that it's not that reading is outlawed in this story. It's that reading books is outlawed. You can read manuals, you can read news, um, like hard news, things that are approved by the state essentially. What you cannot do, what you can read in terms of what you need technically to function in society. What you cannot do is read books that make you think. So fiction and certain kinds of nonfiction. Fiction and some historical shit taken out. Got it. Yes. So they can read. They can read. But you are correct in saying that they would have no cultural and like critical thinking skills necessary to even understand half of what they read. And you are not wrong in saying, how is that going to happen? Because that's literally exactly what happens. So because Mildred is not happy about this, she did not sign up for it, but she like just sits and eventually is so exhausted by this that she just lets him read to her. But you're right. One of their struggles here is that Mildred did not sign up for this. Like I said, Guy did. This is what he's been trying to work toward. He is struggling. He's struggling to understand some of the concepts, but what, but he wants to understand them, right? So that's part of his frustration is that he's reading and he doesn't get it, but he wants to get it. And he knows that there's something important about, about this and about the process that he doesn't, that he doesn't fundamentally get. And that's frustrating him. But Mildred's frustration and her handling of this scenario, a lot of people criticize Mildred as a villain. We're going to jump the shark here and kind of jump to um, sort of uh, talks about what she's going to eventually do as a character. I won't spoil that yet. But a lot of people talk about Mildred as a, as a villain here. And Mildred is not a villain. Mildred is a victim. Mildred did not sign up for this. She's been indoctrinated and brainwashed for who knows how long in, in this state, day and age in her story. She does not get the shit that he's talking about and does not want to, did not ask for it, is perfectly happy with the way things are. So when he is reading to her, she doesn't get the books. She's flustered. She clearly wants to forget them and just be done with it because she's been told that it's wrong 
She has no mental capacity to be able to start critically thinking on her own, just out of the fucking blue, right? This takes, this is something that needs to, that needs to work. You know, you need a lot more work to put it. That's why you go to school and learn how to read in English classes, right? Um, so the, the people point to the fact that, well, she tried to kill herself. So that means that she, there, she, there is something about her that is fundamentally unhappy. Yes. But she has no emotional or critical thinking skills capacity to understand that, to understand why she's unhappy. She has no skills to understand that, to be able to grapple with that, other than, of course, trying to kill herself, which is exactly what she tried to do, obviously, right? So, no, I'm super glad that you mentioned that because it's a huge misconception about the book that you can never read. It's not that you can never read. It's that you're not allowed to read things that make you think too much. Yeah, well, I mean, even if he was an excellent reader Mm -hmm. and, you know, read tons of manuals and tons of whatever bullshit mumbo jumbo the government decided was okay for him to read. Mm -hmm. In no world is he reading 20 books in 24 hours. No, they don't. They absolutely don't. Like he... (laughs) they he stops like he'll read some of one and then he'll stop and he'll like pick up a different one and read yeah. a different version of another one because he's trying to get as much as he can in the short amount of time that he has yeah. especially and, when you pick up books that you and concepts that you don't understand and have never had any experience with like the first time I started the first time I tried to read a Stephen King book when I was like in high school I did not understand what the fuck he was talking about yeah. and I just like I read a chapter and I was like, mm, this is not for me. And reading put it away. comprehension and a reading absorption takes A, time, B, practice, and yeah. C, year, like years of talking to other people about it, yeah. feeling how you feel and hearing how other people feel and relating the experience to other people's experience of the reading process. People don't understand that reading is not an inherently just singular personal thing reading is a communal thing it is a vastly communal thing yep and this book is drawing attention to that and it's actually what people don't realize like when they talk about fahrenheit 451 they talk about censorship which is a huge component of the book but they miss the bigger point which is that when you fundamentally take away the the public's ability to to read and think about what they read which is a huge component of like being alive. It's why art exists. Um, you're taking away a part of humanity, yeah. which is yeah. a big point of this novel. So they're trying to read. They're, they're struggling really, really hard. <laughs> um, and he reveals to her again, he already told her that she had tried to kill herself, but this time he, he, drives it home because he's trying to shock her he's trying to be like you know question something you're not questioning things right which of course she's not she doesn't have any critical thinking skills none of them do he's he's trying to develop his critical thinking skills and he's struggling with it um he's just very focused on figuring out the world around him and why their lives in the U.S. which is where we are in this story are like this in his like rant he like rants at her he yells at her They've had two atomic wars since 1990. Wow. Wow. And he thinks it may be that the rest of the world isn't like this. That 
maybe the the rest of the world is poor and he's he's he hears rumors right you hear rumors he's heard there are poor and starving nations out there and that and we're well fed and we're kept quote unquote happy but we're kept dumb that's why we're constantly at war because everyone hates us is his like big rant and yeah no katie just like spread her arms it's out America. My, my notes wrote i wrote here i mean prophetic yeah <laughs> brave like, Bradbury is prophetic here like get out of my head ray bradbury this is the world we're living in right now yeah so mildred is she's tired she's so obviously tired the poor girl and is just like checks out it's just like fuck it her friends call and she answers the phone and so she's like okay my friends are coming over in the evening so we can watch our shows together and she's pretty clear when she tells guy this like i want this mess dealt with by then (laughs) basically like i don't know how you're going to deal with the mess but you need to deal with it (laughs) yeah so we learn in the narrative here that guy's experience with the old man in the park that he was remembering earlier we didn't get a lot of details it's just him remembering the dude that he met in the park like that's like almost point blank what is said in the narrative now we get more details what happened was he ran into an old english professor in the park and he was pretty sure the man who was a man named faber had a book in his pocket and faber was like oh and you know like is can tell that he's a fireman so like is very worried when he runs into guy but montag doesn't bust him he just wants to talk to faber and so when Faber kind of realizes that the fireman is not going to bust him for having the book hidden in his pocket, he and Faber sit and start talking about life and things, and he gets Faber's number in case of an investigation is his plausible deniability here. So he calls Faber right now, but of course Faber does not want to talk about any of this shit on the phone. Duh, it's illegal, and he hangs up. Yeah. So now Guy is in a quandary because he has to give the book back to Beatty tonight, but he wants to keep it and he wants to keep his other books. And so he doesn't know if Beatty knows the exact book that he stole from the old lady's house earlier, or maybe he doesn't, maybe he just knows that he stole a book. So he's like, can I, can I substitute one of my other books, but I don't want to give up any of these other books. So now he's like, okay, I guess my only option is I have to make a duplicate of this book before I turn it in. So Mildred is upset in this whole scenario. They're talking back and forth because to her, he's choosing books over her happiness, right? And he is like, okay, well, you're choosing your not real TV people over me and more important things in life, right? Is their point in their relationship here? Yeah. So he goes out and he has a breakdown on the subway. And I mean like a breakdown on the subway. He's like listening to the radio and the radio is like singing some, you know, advertisement jingle. And he's trying to read the book out loud in his hands on the subway. Books are illegal. Let's all remember that. So everyone's like, this guy's fucking crazy and illegal, but he gets away before he can be caught and he runs off somehow 
and he makes his way to Faber's and he knocks on the door. Faber is very sus, but eventually lets him in and they argue about why books are so important and like whether or not they can even do anything to even try to begin to fix the shit that they're in in this country. Faber is very cowardly, admittedly. He is very aware that he is a coward. He makes no bones about it. But he's also very intellectual and he's very passionate about knowledge. And Montag is a man with nothing to lose. Um, And he's insistent on doing something or anything because he just can't live like this anymore, right? So if Faber won't help him, he's just going to do it himself. And so with Faced with that, Faber says, okay, well, then I will help you. He does several times try to get Guy to leave because he's too afraid for this shit, but eventually he does go all in and say, okay, I will help you. So this is the plan. They're going to have an underground printing press. They're going to plant books in firemen's homes to make the system sort of Ouroboros itself, the snake eating its own tail moment and he's going to use the current war's inevitable bad consequences it's not clear here what that means but it's but it's probably like economic ones is what they're referring to here they're going to use the inevitable bad consequences of the current war to hopefully shock the people into turning back to books and away from their media consumerism that they're in right now for now the Bible, which was the book that Montag came to duplicate, that was the book that he stole from the house. He stole the Bible, just FYI. Bruh, you could have picked any other book. <laughs> so it's going to stay with favor. And Guy is going to chance turning in one of the other ones. And favor and Guy, before Guy leaves, favor is like, dude i've been making i've been fiddling with the seashells the little earbud things and he's like here you go i've fucking invented bluetooth and gives guy a little earbud which is mind-blowing to him because he can hear faber talking to him in his ear and faber can hear him wherever he is whenever he's talking so bluetooth has been invented and uh Faber is like, like those C- CIA like FBI wires literally literally that's exactly what it is just minus the light coil um <laughs> so Faber is like I'm gonna be here in your ear whenever you need me and I'm gonna hopefully be able to help you talk your way out of shit with BD if BD is giving you crap right so guy finally leaves at home he has had favor talking to him like the whole way there and Mildred's friends are here now for their shows and guy like needs to have chill here this is a moment where he should have chill and he has zero chill like n- negative chill he has another breakdown at them kind of like the one that he had on the subway this he dude. Unplugs- it, he, it's so bad it's like, and he's in his head going like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Faber is literally in his ear going, guy, shut 
up. Shut the fuck up. What are you doing? And he like can't stop himself. It's like diarrhea of the mouth. Yeah. So he unplugs their walls so that they can't watch their shows. And he forces them to talk about the war going on and how their kids are. And this is a scene in the book that shows more of the culture. So they have been so brainwashed into being self-centered. It is obvious in this discussion. The war is just, and I'm like, I'm. Not, it's not a direct quote, but I'm pulling these almost directly from the, the script here, the story. The war is just a 48 hour one. So no one ever dies in these wars, only in the random freak accidents or whatever all the time, whatever they tell us about. So like the war what is the fine. Fuck? What the fuck? Kids are quote ruinous things unquote and like i get why kids exist you know quote the race must go on unquote but also the only way kids are tolerable is if you stick them in school for all but three days a month and then when they're there you just shove them in the tv parlor i mean parenting's easy i don't give a shit about my kids they don't give a shit on me man i'm so happy with that i'm not joking this is the Ver- this is almost the verbatim discussion that they're having it's 2020 wild it's wild so Faber is begging him to shut up in his ear but as I mentioned zero chill and so he goes and finally pulls out a book to yell at them about it and Mildred is very quick and was clearly afraid of this happening already and has like been thinking of ways to excuse it if it happens she's like oh guy you're so crazy see guys girls like you know each year a fireman is allowed one book to bring home just to remind us all about how silly and awful they are guy read how stupid that silly book is i love your idea this is such a great idea yeah read it they'll get a kick out of it it's so silly And Faber is like, yes, yes, play along. She just gave you a gift. You absolute fool. Take this gift, play along, do what she says. Yeah. (laughs) So he does, he reads a poem and it is a sad poem. It is so sad that it actually makes one of the women begin sobbing, uncontrollably sobbing. Yeah. Oops, he loses his chill all over again. He tosses the book in the incinerator because that's what he's supposed to do. And he knows that he should to make sure that he has plausible deniability in this situation. He just has an incinerator in his house. Yeah, they all do. All everyone does. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, it's very uh it's very 1984. Yeah. So um he just tosses it in the incinerator. The neighbors leave, and Mildred is fuming because duh. So He hides the rest of the books in a different location now where Mildred won't know where they are, um, you know, hopefully, or be able to find them. He thinks as he's like looking through them that she may have already burned some of them because he thinks that there's fewer than there were. He goes to work and he is finally, finally able to listen to Faber again and is calmed down now and he's feeling ashamed like he should. And at work, BD is very open like about what guy has done and he's like teasing him about it he's using a bunch of like contradictory quotes from books 
to make it all look useless and meaningless and like, oh, any attempt to know truth through books is just a futile endeavor. And Faber is telling him, okay, be patient, just write it out. You need to let him let him get it out, but you don't need to be listening to him. He's he's just trying to confuse you. You just need to play along. And they get an alarm and they head out to it. And when they get to the destination, Guy is suddenly very sick because the alarm that they've got has taken them to his house. So Mildred comes out and she just gets in the car and she is ignoring Guy. She's lamenting about her poor TV people and she zooms away in her car. She's just tuned him out completely in the universe. She's just allowed to leave? Not She's not arrested? She is obviously here the one that turned them in. She She's turned her husband in. Well, yeah, but still, I feel like, I don't know, if there are drugs in your house, illegal drugs in your house, and you call the cops because there's illegal drugs in your house, you don't just get to get in your car and drive away. Like, you've still got to sit and be questioned and be tested and all these different things, like, to prove that you had no hand in it. Sure. Um, I think the problem here, and it kind of becomes clearer as BD is talking to Guy, is that BD is very sure that Guy is the only one to blame here. So like, it's essentially, he's already gotten Mildred's story. He's already like, okay. Like he's already assuming and kind of figured out like Mildred clearly didn't have anything to do with this. And that's why she's turning in her husband. And so like, I don't really care if she drives away right now. Got it. You know, so Beatty is like, all right, guys, isn't this great? Now you get to burn your own house down with all your books and then you're under arrest. All right. Sound good? Great. And Guy cannot get away because the hound is around and the hound will absolutely kill him if he tries to run. It's what the hound is for. It's the whole reason that the hound exists. So he does it. He goes through his house. He burns the whole house down and the books. And it is at once very freeing and very agonizing for him. And Faber is just asking him at, you know, at any given moment, is there any chance he can escape? Is there any chance he can escape? Right. And suddenly Beatty hits guy in the head, knocking the earpiece out. And Beatty immediately scoops it up. And is like, aha, yeah, I thought so. I could tell you were acting weird. And I could tell that it was because you were listening to your little seashell thing here. Yeah. Anyway, I'll find out whoever's on the other end of this thing later and pockets it. So here's the problem for Beatty. Guy still has a flamethrower in his hands. And Guy knows how to use it because Guy's a fireman. So Guy raises that flamethrower threateningly and Beatty is surprised for the first time and everyone around them stops. And Beatty is like, oh, you know what? This is a bluff. Yeah, you're going to blow me up. You're going to set me on fire, Guy. Why don't you just do it, huh? You're not going to do it. You're really not going to do it. Why don't you just put that flamethrower down? And Guy is absolutely not bluffing. Beatty is dead wrong. Um. Guy is literally a man with nothing to lose, as we have already learned about this. And he straight mercs Beatty. He just fucking incinerates the shit out of him. And he bashes the other two firemen's heads 
to knock them out. And the hound comes to pounce on him. He gets a little partial jab of the anesthetic into his leg because this is what the hound does. The, the way the hound is constructed is it has a little anesthetic probe. It will jab you and it will anesthetize your entire body so you cannot move. And then it can take you wherever it wants to or murder you, depending on what it is told to do. And so it's jumping on him. It gets a little partial jab of the anesthetic into its leg before he flames the hound's ass too. And it is done. But now he's got a numb leg. And he's also in the middle of the road at this point. Like there's been this whole kerfuffle. So he gets clipped by a passing car. Because remember, everyone drives in this world at like 100 miles an hour. This is not an exaggeration. Everyone does it. So he's gotten clipped in the leg. He's got a bum other leg. And he's a fugitive. And he's very pissed at himself for this situation. So he goes to see if maybe Mildred missed some of the books that he had hid and he finds four left. And then he just takes them in his arms and he's in shock and he's trying to work through this trauma and he's sobbing because he did not mean to kill Beatty, but he had no other choice he felt in that moment. And so he remembers that Faber exists. The Bluetooth is of course flamed just out of existence because it was on Beatty. And he does, however, have a regular seashell. So he puts that regular seashell earbud into his ear so he can hear what the media is talking about, that the police are already looking for him. So he's going on the run and he goes behind a gas station to use the outside restroom to clean himself up, to look less conspicuous. And then he has to traverse this open street um, he's working his way to Faber's. He knows that he cannot stay at Faber's very long and that Faber can't help him, but he needs to at least say goodbye and give him, he like took money out of his account earlier because to help build the, the, the underground printing press that they were talking about and fund their other efforts. So he's like, I need to at least give him the money that I pulled out of the bank earlier so that hopefully he can at least keep up with our plan without me. Right. Yeah. So he is almost run over by a speeding crazy car of teenagers purposefully. They are trying to run him over. It almost works. He manages to get safely away and into an alley um, before it happens. And he wonders in this moment if these were the ones who killed Clarice, right? So then he stops at a fireman's house. He breaks in and he leaves some books in there and he calls an alarm for their house. Uh, Cause remember this was another component of his and Faber's plans. And then he continues on to Faber's place. Faber is, of course, very glad that he isn't dead, which was what he was afraid of. Um, And Montag tells him what happened. And Faber tells him to follow the river until he hits train tracks. Because he hears that along the train tracks, there are homeless old um, university people, essentially. People from universities who are just living in what is essentially hobo camps, to use uh, an unfortunately not pc term there and they'll likely know how to help him keep evading capture and what faber is going to do is faber is going to go to st louis to start up the underground printing press that they were talking about so they turn on faber's tv to see what they're talking about for guy right and they've flown in a new hound from another district to pick up his trail and they're starting from his house and so Guy quickly asks for some supplies and he apologizes to Faber for likely getting him ruined here because the hound, the thing about the hound is 
they call it a hound for a reason. Scent is a big thing. Um, and Guy is like, oh, well, fuck, you know, my scent is literally all over your house now. So I'm so sorry. Um, and so Faber doesn't care. It, I mean, he cares, but he also doesn't. He feels finally like he's doing the right thing. That the thing that he's known he should be doing for a long time, he's finally doing it. So he doesn't care really in that regard. And he gets Guy some supplies and Guy is trying to tell him the things in his house to burn to hopefully get rid of his scent um, because Guy knows the hound, you know? So he's like, you should do this. You should burn this. You should burn all of these. What you should do after is you should, you know, turn your air on, turn the sprinklers on outside, uh, you, like washing my scent even off of the grass and all of that crap. And then he's out. He's making his way through the neighborhood to the river. He watches the hound on the walls um, of people's homes from outside because he can see their, their TV parlors because all TV parlors are like this, exactly like his and Mildred's, at least one of the walls, if not more, right? I mean, that's how so, I feel right now. When we drive through our neighborhood and people have their like blinds open, everyone's mm-hmm. fucking giant TVs. Like you could see exactly what they're watching from their windows. And this is exactly what he does is he is walking through the neighborhood and he's keeping visual track. He can still hear on his seashell, but he's keeping visual track of where they are as well by looking at through people's windows. Yeah. He sees that the hound does get to Faber's house, but it does pass Faber by, thankfully. And so he then narrowly escapes <laughs> um, the neighborhood because the broadcasters start forcing the residents to all look outside at the same moment to capture him. And so like at the last possible second when they're like, open your doors, look outside right now. He finally makes it out of the neighborhood completely to the river. He strips, he rubs himself all over with a bunch of alcohol, which is some of the thing that, um, that Faber gave him. And then he changes his clothes to the clothes that Faber gave him. And he lets himself float down the river. The hound does make it to the river where he entered. And so when he, and he can tell this because there's like helicopters in the air also. So he's seeing where they are. So he, when he, like, he tries to keep underwater as much as possible when he realizes they've gotten to the river. Um, But they eventually move back inland. And he keeps floating down the river for a long, long time. He finally gets back onto land in the dead of night and he finds the railroad tracks. He follows the tracks um, until he comes to a small band of older, clear hobos, again, warming by a fire. They invite him to join them. They know his name. And the reason they know who he is is because they have a little portable TV. They've been watching the chase. The chase is about to end. And Guy is like, what do you mean it's about to end? Like they're giving up? And they're like, oh, no, no, they're about to catch you. And Guy is like, what? And they're like, listen, they've lo- they lost you already. They lost you when you got to the river. They're about to catch you though. There's no way that they're going to let this go. So they show Montag that he, of course, he clearly eluded them at the river. So now they have to find a replacement for him because they cannot be made fools of. The people must be satisfied, right? So they watch 
them on the TV follow quote unquote Montag to a different neighborhood and they find and they capture and they kill quote unquote Guy Montag. The footage is just grainy enough that no one would ever be able to tell and they declare him dead on the air and they move on. The group is made up of a the group that he is in now of these homeless guys. It's made up of a reverend, an author named Granger, who is the clear leader here in this little thing, old professors from Cambridge, UCLA, Columbia, and they offer him to be quote unquote with them. And they ask him what he has to offer. And he says, well, I think I have some Ecclesiastes and Revelations memorized, but I have a hard time remembering them. And they're like, oh, that's fine. We'll teach you how to remember them. You'll be perfect with it in no time. They all reveal their plans for keeping the the fight alive. Their plan is they memorize books. They have people who are in their little book, like club, for lack of a better word, all around the country, just holding the books in their heads until the day comes when they'll be able to write them down again legally. And this is why they never get in trouble with the law because they never have books because they read them once and then they burn them and then they keep them in their heads. And they've like perfected some weird way to recall. Like it's, it's very like in this day and age, you remember, you have to remember, ah, Freud. (laughs) So it is very, this weird, like Freudian psychological thing of like, we've perfected this psychological way to deep, to reach into the deep recesses of your mind and have you recall your books perfectly. And then you can teach it to others and, and we can teach you how to do that. And Montag is of course, very here for this. That is insane. To me. <laughs> it's so, like, so wild. There, there are very few books where, that I have memorized hundred percent. And the like three that I do are like the very hungry caterpillar and I am a bunny yeah. and yeah. like chicka, chicka, boom, boom, eight or chicka, chicka, ABC. Like, mm-hmm. That's it. I got three. And it's only because I read them 75 times in a row to a child once and it just was burned into my brain. Right. There's no way I could memorize like The Shining or the Bible or any of those. Like there are people right now who have devoted themselves to memorizing the Bible and don't have it all memorized. So yeah, it's super like certifiably wild the (laughs) fact that they are memorizing shit yeah but that's their thing so they start moving along the river and guy laments about his wife being left behind in the city and he's lamenting more about not feeling anything for her i mean she betrayed you bitch like bye so granger and him kind of talk about life and issues and then whoever we've declared war on in the last several days, remember I've been talking about a war? Yeah. Whoever the U.S. in this moment has declared war on drops some atomic bombs on the city that he left behind. The men are all knocked off their feet in this blast. And eventually the city crumbles and the rumbles settle and they gather themselves and they eat and they decide, okay, well, 
now we're going to have to keep moving because likely there are going to be people who need us to remember the books to give people some hope after this. And they head off and Montag begins remembering some of his Bible shit that he had been trying to memorize and was having trouble with. And that's the end of the story. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. How is that how it ended? Mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury, what? <laughs> you didn't give us a reason for these wars. You didn't give us possible countries or a resolution to anything. You didn't tell us like, oh yeah, these wars were, you know, the UN or whoever coming into America to stop this fucking horrible tyranny that's happening and free the American people. Like, you didn't give us any of that. It was just, oh yeah, a bomb went off. Fuck it. Let's keep wandering with our unlimited book knowledge now. What the shit? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is a very short book. So like, holding this yeah. in my hands. You cannot see it, unfortunately, dear listener, but Katie can see it on the screen. It's not a very large book. It's slightly larger, slightly longer than Great Gatsby. Yeah, um, maybe honestly around the same length because in this form, it's 165 pages. God damn, that's short. Short. Uh, it's a novella. It's not really even a novel. It's a novella. So Ray Bradbury was a frequent visitor of libraries, um, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s. And he was really disappointed that they didn't stock in that time sci-fi novels like H.G. Wells novels, right? Because they were not prestigious enough or literary enough, essentially. And this is one of the like first moments. Another one is when the Library of Alexandria is destroyed, where he sort of realizes how vulnerable books are to censorship. And of course, also, we then move right after this into Nazi book burnings and Stalinism and the Great Purge. And um, if no one knows that, it's um, where writers and poets, among many other sort of artists, are often um, arrested and executed. And all of this horrifies him. So the end of World War II in the U.S., uh, it really focused its concern on Soviet, like a the Soviet atomic bomb project, for instance, the expansion of communism, right? Um, the HUAC or the House Un-American Activities Com Committee is formed in 1938, which is to investigate American citizens slash organizations that are suspected of having communist ties, not just like they are communists, but even just suspected of that. And there are hearings in 1947 to investigate the, the suspected communist influence in Hollywood. Again, not actually even proven, just like alleged communist influence in Hollywood. And this whole whirlwind of government in influence and interference in art and creativity and creative circles, this pisses Bradbury off, essentially. So... The last thing that really sort of cements him creating a book called like night like Fahrenheit 451 is he has a nighttime encounter in 1949 with an asshole cop, essentially. After this 
encounter that he has he writes a very short story called the pedestrian that short story eventually becomes the fireman a little longer and then the fireman along with other stories eventually becomes fahrenheit 451 and the mccarthy era is occurring and the hearings in the mccarthy area and all of this further pisses him off and it is all fuel to his sort of anti-censorship fire and by 1950 right we're in the height of the cold war it's it's going (laughs) we are there and the this big U.S. fear of nuclear warfare as well as communism is, is just massive. It's so influential to the art that is going on, despite the fact that artists are considered communist, um, if they even hint at being anti-capitalist and anti-U.S. or whatever, or criti- critical of anything government-related. Mm. And it of course influences Bradbury's nuclear holocaust setting that we get here in Fahrenheit 451. And lastly, some of the big influences here for Fahrenheit 451 for Ray Bradbury is of course the golden age of radio and the golden age of television. And he really is anti this. He really believes that these new medias are threatening books they're threatening social attention to the important issues that are occurring around them. And I mean, yeah. he's right to an extent. Exactly. He is right to an extent. That is the moral of today's episode. We might as well call it, he's right to an extent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, books have more or less fallen by the wayside as a form of adult entertainment oh i disagree because we've got audiobooks we've got books in their ebook forms books are huge still the difference is is that there's just a wide variety of ways to to absorb those books right i would say what i what i mean to say i guess is in the 50s 40s 50s every 60s everyone was reading like sure that was how you consumed everything that that your only option was reading <laughs> yeah I think and that- now and now because we have so many other things that you could do besides reading a lot like there are still people reading yes the audiobooks the whatever but like the amount of adults I know who haven't read an audiobook or picked up a physical book in a decade is staggering like yeah there's a lot. No, no, you're not wrong. And um, I think that the problem here is that, especially back then, and still unfortunately today, some people, they conflated book reading with real, like, what is the word I'm looking for? With like, oh, this is real intellectual experience. This is real thought or critical thinking. Oh, it's the, still the, like that. The story, exactly. And that's where they were wrong because they're obviously not wrong that radio and TV and other forms of entertainment absolutely took uh, took their own spotlights. And the book is not the overall largest form of enter, quote unquote entertainment. Yeah. That's, that's correct. That's just a factual statement. That yeah. is for sure. You're correct. What people 
unfortunately assume with that is that people are no longer being intellectual or no longer critically thinking. And that is where they fall short because reading a book and absorbing the story and thinking about the, the, the things that think that reading is meant to make you think about, right? Thinking about the world, thinking about life and what it means to be a human and, and you know, all of those things. Those same experiences happen whether or not you're playing a video game, whether or not you are listening to music, to be perfectly honest, whether or not you're watching a, a TV show or watching a movie. All of those experiences still fundamentally happen. The problem is people, uh, people for a really long time like sequestered reading off into like this separate corner from art in general as a form of like the the more sophisticated artistic endeavor and all art essentially has the same function whether you are reading a book or watching a tv show or listening to music or playing a video game and they were very just this knee-jerk um you know fear of where is intellectualism going? Well, intellectualism can be here in any given medium. It's how you cultivate that intellectualism. You can't just leave it by the wayside if they're not reading a book. You just have to cultivate it differently if they're into video games rather than reading books, right? So I have had this conversation argument, not really argument, but a conversation on this not on this podcast but on several other versions of our podcasts um (laughs) because this exact kind of argument is happening currently in the film industry there is a lot of hate and pushback from quote intellectual directors Mm -hmm. saying that you know superhero films and action movies are taking away from the genre and they're ruining uh they're ruining film and they're ruining art and they're ruining you know um critical thinking and all these different things and i've you know i will say it i will shout it from the fucking mountaintops okay i have had hours long conversations about the socio-political conundrums that happen in superhero movies with friends and how it reflects the broader world for hours hours and hours and hours worth of conversation talking about how this character's one movement in this section of this film caused this entire thing that happened in this war and this war and this thing and you know equating it to actual history um so fuck everybody who (laughs) wants to come out here and say some shit like marvel movies are not smart intelligent intellectual property or whatever down the they're dumbing down the society at large and the collective yeah processes and critical thinking skills yeah absolutely incorrect um the assumption is for sure the the knee-jerk reaction to genres that are different that you don't essentially understand and it's unfortunate that you don't understand them but you i mean it's not required of you to understand them to a enjoy them but it's also B, not required for you to understand them, to understand that they hold artistic, critical thinking, intellectual 
um, value because all art does. This is like, for instance, when Dadaism became an art movement, everyone was like, well, Dada, I mean, this is just stupid. It doesn't mean anything. But that was literally the point of Dadaism. Dadaism was like, no, we're an artistic movement all about how shit don't mean anything unless you give it meaning. That I could give you an upside down urinal that is 50 feet high in the center of Times Square or whatever, and it has the meaning that you give it. Art does not inherently have more or less meaning depending on the genre that it is or the content that it holds. Art has the meaning that humanity gives it, right? That is what art is. And reading, fiction, writing is art. It is a humanities for a reason. There are fundamental practical reasons why you need to learn and understand and be able to read, right? And write, absolutely. But writing and reading from an artistic standpoint is just as valid as movies, TV shows, video games. They are just as valid as reading and writing because when you are reading and writing it for artistic purposes, the critical thinking skills and the intellectual things that are going on in the process of absorbing literature or absorbing art in other ways is the exact same process that you go through when you are playing a video game or you know watching a TV show. Those processes are the same, right? And you're exactly right. I mean, if I were to watch The Boys on Amazon and tell me that there's not some sort of like really important like political discussions that could be had about the content of the quote unquote silly superhero show the boys on Amazon because that's literally the whole point of the boys existing is to be like hey what if we did superhero movies but just more we were just like hey no this is really about life like just about real life <laughs> except we're superheroes <laughs> right so yeah you're exactly right it's there is no there is no <laughs> It's not that it's not understandable that people think this way because it is a, it's a common misconception. It's that the, the misconception is unfounded. It is based on the same sort of fundamental knee-jerk reaction to changing and evolving technologies and changing and evolving culture, cultural um, interests that all generations go through, unfortunately. Fun fact, the novel, Fahrenheit 451 was serialized in March, April, and May of the 1954 issues of Playboy magazine. That Fun. is a choice. <laughs> Just to like hit home, like that's not art, that's trash. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I read it for the articles. Okay. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So, in January of 1967, the publisher behind Fahrenheit 451 put out a version for high schoolers. And this version censored a bunch of stuff. It censored curse words, right? Hell, damn. It also censored words like abortion. It censored in total 75 passages and it changed, literally changed in the narrative to specific incidents. One incident is a drunk man is changed to a sick man. 
And the second incident is cleaning stuff out of like a human belly button, basically. It becomes cleaning someone's ears in the other passage. Like someone in 67 didn't know what the fuck a drunk man was. Literally everybody drank to get through. Oh, the but day. high schoolers, but high schoolers couldn't know that. They're so innocent and pure, Katie. But high schoolers were also getting drunk. 67 <laughs> was literally two years before Woodstock. Two years before all of them would get naked and dance with each other in a fucking field listening to music. How dare you? High schoolers are basically Adam and Eve before they ate the apple. They are walking around naked. They are pure as the driven snow. (laughs) Oh my God, people. So in 1979, so let's think about this. This is over 10 years after that initial beginning thing happened. By 1973, by the way, the publishing company was only publishing that censored version. It had essentially replaced the original version. So by 1979, Bradbury okay with this. He didn't know about it. In 1979, over a decade after the initial beginning of the censorship, one of his friends showed him one like a censored copy. And he immediately demanded that the publisher withdraw that version from circulation entirely and replace it with the original. And by 1980, it once again became available and they had discontinued the censored versions. Good. The publisher literally did not read the book. mm -hmm. So how do you publish a book and not, not read it or not understand what the fuck is talk it's talking about it right. a fundamental keystone of this yeah the whole the book is telling you the entire 160 pages is telling you that censorship is bad okay and you mm-hmm. were like oh haha, <laughs> funny let's censor this mm-hmm. so you didn't get it <laughs> yeah oh my god of another fun fact the audiobook version read by Bradbury himself, released in 1976, received a spoken word Grammy nomination. Nice. And another audiobook of it was released in 2005, narrated by one Christopher Hurt. Hello. Hello, one of the iterations of the Doctor. And the War Doctor. And Ollivander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... It'd be a really good version too. He has a great voice. Oh, he's remarkable. So in terms of its reception, like it's obviously today viewed as very important. It's viewed as, you know, a, a cautionary tale about, you know, censorship being bad, right? And evil and conforming to cultural standards is not good, et cetera. Government oversight. When it first came out, people were honestly not as happy with it. The New York Times in particular was unimpressed with it. Um, They (laughs) accused Bradbury of having a, quote, virulent hatred for many aspects of present day culture, namely such monstrosities as radio, TV, most movies, amateur and professional sports, automobiles, and other similar aberrations, which he feels debased the bright simplicity of the thinking man's existence. And they're not wrong. He absolutely hated those things. So as Katie was talking about when we like first began this episode, Fahrenheit 451 has occasionally been a banned book 
or a censored or otherwise redacted book, especially in schools. Here are some notable instances. 87, 1987, we're in Florida. There was a superintendent, Leonard Hall. He removes it from classrooms for, quote, vulgarity. There was a class action lawsuit. There was some big media shit involved and the students protest and they get his stupid censoring system banned and he gets the book. They get the book and all the other books that were involved in this reinstated. In 1992, in Irvine, California, we're in a left-leaning state here. In 92, copies of Fahrenheit 451 were given to students in this school with all the, quote, obscene words blacked out. And parents contacted local media and they succeeded in reinstalling the uncensored copies. And in 2006, there were parents of a 10th grade class in Texas and they demanded that the book be banned from their daughter's English class because they and their child, the actual student, thought that the language was offensive and they didn't like that the Bible was getting burned in it. In it. And so they wanted the book banned. Oh my and God. They, had, in addition, protested the violence in it, the portrayal of Christians in it, which is wild because I literally just gave you the the synopsis of this book. There's no bad portrayal of Christianity in this book. I, I honestly feel like- There is zero bad portrayal of Christianity. I feel like it's a positive portrayal of Christianity because the book ding, that ding, the, ding. all of these scholars are attempting to memorize is the ding, Bible. Ding, ding. Mm-hmm. Like they're trying to save religion in a yep. world in a world that has already outlawed basically learning about religion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ding ding ding. It is one hundred percent not a bad portrayal of Christianity whatsoever. Um, but anyway, despite all of this bullshit. They don't succeed. So that's nice. They don't succeed in getting it banned. Yeah. Let's talk about the themes in this book. This is where we start talking about, well, we start start talking about Bradbury as a person. And, um, whew, okay. So there's a quote by Bradbury from a radio interview in 1956. He says, I wrote this book at a time when I was worried about the way things were going in this country four years ago. Too many people were afraid of their shadows. There was a threat of book burning. Many of the books were being taken off the shelves at that time. And of course, things have changed a lot in four years. Things are going back to a very healthy direction. But at the time, I wanted to do some sort of story where I could comment on what would happen to a country if we let ourselves go too far in this direction, where then all thinking stops and the dragon swallows its tail, and we sort of vanish into a limbo, and we destroy ourselves by this sort of action. Understandable quote. He later, however, claims that the real messages of Fahrenheit 451 were all about the dangers of an illiterate society, particularly that minority and special interest groups threaten books. Whatever you're thinking, keep thinking it, because it's exactly that. We'll get there. In the late 1950s, Bradbury recounted seeing a couple walking with a woman, like essentially having a portable radio and wow, she's just sleepwalking through life. Oh, it's so scary. It's so spoopy. And this was just such a horror to him. 
And then he writes in 1979, and he makes it a little clearer that while state censored, state-based, excuse me, while state-based censorship is of course abhorrent, it always begins with minorities bringing the torches and the pitchforks to the books. And without those minorities beginning those incidents, then state-sponsored censorship wouldn't happen. And the state and the government censorship fear is a byproduct of his real theme. That's his point here. And uh, this really tracks because I need us to think of the way in which Granger in the book, right? Granger, the leader of the, the homeless people who are memorizing books, they're doing oral tradition. That's what they're doing, right? Yeah. It's like they're an oppressed people. Except remember that these characters, they're white, A. And B, the stuff that they choose to remember are the things that at this time were deemed by white society to be society to be the cultured and the intellectual and the good and the important works. And in 1994, it gets worse. Shocker. Oops. Because Bradbury states that in Fahrenheit 451, it was more relevant during this time in 1994 than in any other because, quote, it works even better because we have political correctness now. Political correctness is the real enemy these days. The Black groups want to control our thinking, and you can't say certain things. The homosexual groups don't want you to criticize them. It's thought control and freedom of speech control. Remember when I told you whatever you were thinking earlier? Keep thinking it because you were correct. Ding, ding, ding. Here we are. That was what it was leading to. He is a racist. He is a racist and a bigot. Well, I mean, that's not shocking. He was a white man in the 50s. Like, oh, no, not shocking. It's just like this whole championship of, of censorship. You have to think about where the book is. The people who are the champions in this book are all white, old men who are intellectuals who are holding on to the works of literary art that the white male society back then deemed appropriate and intellectual and worthy of being remembered. Yeah. So let's just like unpack some of this shit because like, wow, right? There's this cognitive dissonance here for Bradbury. He like, as time goes on, he gets more and more removed from his book because he is siding with his own villain in the story. I'm going to read some stuff that Beattie talks about. Beattie, Captain Beattie, the, the literal villain of this story. Yeah. Guy Montag murders him because he's the villain. Okay, I'm going to read some stuff that he says. Click, pick, look, I, now, flick, here, there, swift, pace, up, down, in, out, why, how, who, what, where, eh, uh, bang, smack, wallop, bing, bong, boom, digest, 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 politics, one column, two sentences, a headline, then in midair, all vanishes, whirl man's mind around so fast under the pumping hands of publishers, exploiters, broadcasters, that the centrifuge flings off all unnecessary time-wasting thought. School is shortened, discipline relaxed, 
Philosophies, histories, languages dropped. English and spelling gradually, gradually neglected. Finally, almost completely ignored. Life is immediate. The job can counts. Pleasure lies all about after work. Why learn anything? Save pressing buttons and pulling switches and fitting nuts and bolts. What more easily explained than natural? With school turning out more runners, jumpers, racers, tinkerers, grabbers, snatchers, flyers, and swimmers, instead of examiners, critics, knowers, and imaginative creators, the word intellectual, of course, became the swear word it deserved to be. You always dread the unfamiliar. Surely you remember the boy in your own school class who was exceptionally bright and did most of the reciting and answering while the others sat like so many leaden idols hating him. And wasn't it this bright boy you selected for beatings and tortures after hours? Of course it was. We must all be alike. Not everyone born free and equal as the constitution says, but everyone made equal. Each man, the image of every other. And then all are happy for there are no mountains to make them cower, to judge themselves against. So a book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it, take the shot from the weapon, breach man's mind. Who knows who might be the target of the well-read man, me? I won't stomach them for a minute. And so when houses were finally fireproof completely all over the world, there was no longer need of firemen for the old purposes. We were given the new job as custodians of our peace of mind, the focus of our understandable and rightful dread of being inferior, official censors, judges, and executors. There is also a moment, I'm not gonna, well, you know what? No, fuck it, I am gonna read it. This is the last one I'm gonna read. Again, beady. Colored people don't like little black Sambo? Burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's cabin? Burn it. Someone's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs? The cigarette people are weeping? Burn the book. Serenity, Montag, peace, Montag. Take your fight outside. Better yet, into the incinerator. Better yet, into the incinerator. Funerals are unhappy and pagan, will eliminate them too. Five minutes after a person is dead, he's on his way to the big flu. The incinerators are serviced by helicopters all over the country. 10 minutes after death, a man's a speck of black dust. Let's not quibble over individuals with memoriams. Forget them, burn all, burn everything. So like, <laughs> men hate the intellectual is literally his point in this book. Yeah. Right? It's because they don't like feeling stupid. Yeah. It's not because it's not because the minorities are controlling your thoughts. No, it's right? fragile masculinity. Essentially, right? That's point number one. Because what I just said literally is Ray Bradbury talking through his villain. Yeah. Number two, one of his protagonists literally gets it when he doesn't. So I'm going to read Faber's stuff now. It's not books you need. It's some of the things that once were in books. The same things could be in the parlor families, which is referring to the TVs today. The same infinite detail and awareness could be projected through the radios and the televisors, but they're not. No, no, it's not books at all you're looking for. Take it where you can find it. 
Books were only one type of receptacle where we stored a lot of things we were afraid we might forget. There's nothing magical in them at all. The magic is only in what books say, how they stitched the patches of the universe together into one garment for us. Of course, you couldn't know this. Of course, you still can't understand what I mean when I say all this. You're intuitively right, and that's what counts. These are the three things that are missing. Number one, do you know why books such as this are so important? Because they have quality. So the dude literally gets it because he wrote this as the protagonist, right? Yeah. I'm not going to read because he like he goes on and on forever. But the first is one of three things that he says. The first thing is quality, quality of information. The other two things that his one of his protagonists of the novel say is time given to critically think about it and freedom to act on it, right? Freedom to act on your thoughts, your yeah. critical thinking skills. Those are the three things that are needed for life to have meaning. That is his protagonist's point. Bradbury is the textbook image of cognitive dissonance here. <laughs> the longer he goes away from the moment in which he wrote this book, the more and more he literally gets muddled by the own thing that he is criticizing. Because talking about how minorities are censoring your, your words and political correctness is evil, that's all shit that the media was pushing in the 90s. Yeah. The exact shit that Ray Bradbury is convinced that's what his book was really about. He is 1000% incorrect. He wrote it in a raw, real moment, and he literally forgets the entire point of the book that he wrote well, as time goes on. What, at that time, he would have been what, in his 70s? Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it is true. The older you get, the more set in your ways you are, and the like more difficult you find it to be able to discern um, important critical things about yourself right yeah i want to read one last passage of this which is granger who is the leader of the homeless guys who are memorizing books there was a silly damn bird called a phoenix back before christ every few hundred years he built a pyre and burnt himself up he must have been first cousin to man but every time he burnt himself up, he sprang out of the ashes. He got himself born all over again. And it looks like we're doing the same thing over and over. But we've got one damn thing the phoenix never had. We know the damn silly thing we just did. We know all the damn silly things we've done for a thousand years. And as long as we know that and always have it around where we can see it, someday we'll stop making the goddamn funeral pyres and jumping in the middle of them. We'll pick up a few more people that remember every generation. That's the point. The point is that we learn from our mistakes, which you cannot do if you censor media and you censor history and you censor the ability to be able to know the truth of what people have been doing in the moment. Which is what's like happening Portland. right now yep ding 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 guess what you can't do you cannot learn from slavery if you're not allowed to talk about slavery all i'm gonna say so 
there are film adaptations of, of Fahrenheit 451. There was a film adaptation um, starring Michael B. Jordan, Michael Shannon, Sophia Boutella, Lily Singh in 2018 for HBO. Just so you know, I'm going to go fucking watch that purely because Michael B. Jordan is a snack. Yep. But also because I just so happen to have HBO Max. Yeah. Um, Bradbury adapts his book into a play in the 1970s. There's also radio productions of it. In 1984, the novel was adapted into a computer text adventure game by Trillium, which I just find very interesting. The 80s were wild. (laughs) And in 2009, there was a graphic novel edition of the book. So Michael Moore makes a 2004 documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11, which is a reference to Bradbury's novel, obviously, and the uh, 9-11 attacks in the U.S. So Bradbury was upset by this because Bradbury, in case you were not aware of this or it was not made clear yet, is a conservative. He was and still alive? Yes, in 2004. Um, mm-hmm. He was upset. He considered an appropriation of his of his title. He wanted the film renamed, uh, and more refused basically. And then made a subsequent documentary, <laughs> Fahrenheit eleven nine in twenty eighteen about the election of Donald Trump. So, it won the Prometheus Award for um, nineteen eighty four. Fahrenheit four fifty one did, I should say. Yeah. Bradbury was born himself, Ray Bradbury, on August 22nd, 1920 in Waukegan, Illinois. They lived in Tucson, Arizona. He and his family did from like 1926 to 1927. And uh, in the 32s to 33, 1932 to 1933, uh, they also lived there. And eventually they settled in LA in 1934 when Bradbury's 14 years old. Bradbury was an avid reader when he was young. Uh, He was also a writer. He knew at a young age that he was going to be in the arts somehow, whichever way. And he began writing his own stories at age 12. He cites, of course, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne um, as his sort of primary sci-fi influences. And he does eventually, as he grows older, of course, embrace um, lit that is more than just sci-fi. Alexander Pope, John Donne are his quoted big influences. He publishes his first story in 1938. Um, He was rejected for being uh, in the military during World War II because of his eyesight. And so he writes full-time after that and becomes a full-time writer by 24. He is rejected from weird tales and then he submits a short story called Homecoming to a magazine called Mademoiselle, which was spotted by a young editorial assistant, Truman Capote, who then picks it up out of that pile and is like, ah, oh, shit, and it gets published, which then went on to win the O. Henry Award. Um, oh, it won a place, excuse me, in the O. Henry Award stories of 1947. He was a strong supporter of public library systems, which is a great thing, um, really important. He raises money to prevent 
the closure of several libraries in California throughout his lifetime because that were facing budgetary cuts. When the publishing rights for Fahrenheit 451 actually came up for renewal in 2011, he allowed it to be published in e-form only if Simon and Schuster would allow the ebook to be digitally downloaded by any library patron at all. And they conceded. And his title remains the only book in Simon and Schuster's catalog history where this is possible. He's quoted as saying about himself and his education that, quote, libraries raised me. I don't believe in colleges and universities. I believe in libraries because most students don't have any money. When I graduated from high school, it was during the depression and we had no money. I couldn't go to college. So I went to the library three days a week for 10 years. And you know what? Out of all the problematic things about Ray Bradbury out there, supporting public libraries is not a problematic thing. He is totally right in that. And that's a great thing that he does and did when he was alive. Yeah. On May 24th, 1956, he appears on a television, um, excuse me, he appears on the quiz show, You Bet Your Life, which was hosted by Groucho Marx. And uh, he also worked on the original exhibit in Epcot Space, Spaceship Earth at Disney World. Hmm. Yeah. His comics have been featured in um, lots of really popular magazines, in, including Tales from the Crypt. And he's authored more than 27 novels and story collections that include many of, his, of 600 short stories. God damn. In 1953, he was hired to work on a spleen screenplay, excuse me, a spleen, a spleen cray, a spleen cray, a screenplay for Moby Dick, which would star Gregory Peck and Orson Welles. Wow. Big name there. He was a very close friend to Charles Adams. I don't know who that is. Adams illustrated the first of Bradbury's short story uh, about the Elliots which was a family who that was very inspired by Charles Adams's own Adams family. Oh. He was an Ayn Rand fan, which says a lot about him. And uh, he was great friends for almost three decades with Dreen Roddenberry, who is the creator of Star Trek. And when Roddenberry died, it was a really big affecting um, moment for Bradbury. One of his short stories, I Sing the Body Electric, was adapted for the 100th episode of The Twilight Zone, the actual legitimate Twilight Zone. That's um, cool. Mm -hmm. And Spielberg and Gaiman and, you know, Stephen King, among those that credit Bradbury as being very influential for them. He won Emmys. He won honorary doctorates from several institutions, like doctorates, multiple. Um on November 17th, 2004, he received the National Medal of Arts, which was presented to him by George W. Bush and Laura Bush. Um, he was given a star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood on April 1st, 2002. In 71, there was an impact crater on the moon, which they named by after one of his short novels. There is an asteroid in 1992 discovered that is named in his honor as well 
And in 2012, the NASA Curiosity rover landing site is named Bradbury Landing on Mars. Hmm. So his personal life is, I got some pretty short notes here. Um, He was married to Marguerite McClure from 1947 until she dies in 2003. She was the only woman he literally ever dated, which is wild. They had not unheard of in the 40s and 50s, though. Yeah, fair. Um, They had four daughters. Bradbury never obtained a driver's license. He never drove. Um, He relied on public transportation or his bicycle. So the crazy drivers in his book are literally partially a fear. Yep. Uh, And he lived at home until he was 27 and married. So he literally just lived at home, hits 27, finally marries and moves out. He was raised as a Baptist, but it was like casual. Um, He avoids really defining his religion, but it is honestly very Western centric to be perfectly clear. Uh, He suffers a stroke in 1999. It left him partially dependent on a wheelchair for mobility after that. Um, And he chose a burial place for himself in LA with a headstone that reads author of Fahrenheit 451. He dies um, in LA on June 5th, 2012 at 91 years old after a lengthy illness. And that is the life and the legacy for this podcast of Fahrenheit 451 um yeah that's fucking crazy 91 is hella old and also crazy that he didn't understand his own book as time went on like he (laughs) yeah he stopped away from it he stopped understanding his book like Mm -hmm. bro but you got it when you wrote it interesting well now we're on to something completely different um fucking right like as as far from fahrenheit 451 (laughs) maybe as you can get um i watched the 1994 i'm not gonna say classic thing i remember (laughs) from my childhood how Uh, dare you besmirch the name tammy and the t-rex now i'm gonna start with a little bit of history on this movie um tammy and the t-rex was created by the same director as uh it's a horrible movie called mac and me um if you have never seen mac and me or heard of mac and me just google uh paul rudd on conan mac and me oh no and you will see why that movie is horrible in the like 30 second clip that gets shown it's just insane so the way that this movie came about um this director met a man from south america who was transporting this giant like animatronic dinosaur to a uh like a theme park that was going to be using it I don't know. He didn't say it didn't say what theme park. We can only guess. It was just Where gonna, did he meet him? How I don't big fucking was know. Dinosaur. I don't fucking well, know. But I have so many questions. <laughs> me too. Okay. I don't know. But this guy like 
looked was searching for this specific director and found him and they started conversing and he tells him about this animatronic t-rex that he has um and he explains you know i really want this t-rex to be in a movie because you know it's really fucking cool like its eyes move and its arms move and its mouth moves like it's like the height of technology in ni- like 1993 okay we're this is peak technology here and the guy's like yeah i really want it to be in a movie and the director is basically like yeah that would be really fucking cool and the guy says oh well i only have it for like two months so like i wouldn't we would need a movie like a script and a thing and a this and really quick the director was like you know what give me a minute so he goes home challenge accepted challenge is fucking (laughs) accepted so he starts making (laughs) phone calls he starts making phone calls and within like two weeks they had assembled a cast and crew to make this dinosaur movie that had not been written yet the director started writing it and was still writing it on set as they were filming oh my god so this movie the script for this movie was literally made as it was being done and that's amazing and the director actually he would write something and have everybody do it and after they would shoot it he would ask everybody what would you do what could you do to improve the scene like if you could what what would you change how could we make it better and he would get input from all of the cast and crew (laughs) on his script that he wrote in a week (laughs) so this movie is credited all to the director like the writing is all credited to the director but should be credited to everyone in the cast and crew because they all had input onto how to fix this movie how to make it a solid movie so yeah they created this movie in a very short period of time because they only had the dinosaur animatronic for a limited amount of time before it got shipped to whatever amusement park it ended up being used for fucking wild guys fucking wild okay that's insane yeah this entire setup is insane (laughs) yes i don't know how else to talk about it wow it is wild okay so into this movie now the original title of this movie was tanny and the teenage t-rex t-a-n-n-y um and i watched the uncut version so the credits that i saw like the logo that i saw said tanny and the credits like as they were crediting the cast denise richards is credited as playing tanny t-a-n-n-y denise richards i totally forgot about her until right now yeah so she's credited as playing tanny even though throughout the whole movie her name is tammy all everyone talks to her and her name is tammy with m's yeah not n's fucking weird okay (laughs) like you couldn't fix that clearly you knew her name was gonna be tammy who knows they put this movie together very quickly clearly i was gonna say no no one did spell check on that 
Yeah, no one told the art produce the artwork person. They were like, "Hey, name's <laughs> Tammy, not Tanny anymore. We changed that like day one." Oh well, you're stuck with Tanny. I can't fix it. <laughs> Sorry, bud. <laughs> you like, are- I, already, I already packaged that shit. Sorry, sent yeah. off. Sir. You already paid me like my ten dollars in a sandwich, so I. <laughs> so, this movie follows Tammy, our main protagonist, played by Denise Richards, and her boyfriend, a very, very young Paul Walker. And when I tell you that this was the reason I love this movie as a child, I am not exaggerating, okay? Oh, yeah. Me and Paul Walker go way back, my infatuation with him, all the way to this movie. This movie came out in 1994. I was all of seven um and was like yo that high school paul walker over there that guy he's the guy that's the guy (laughs) hell yeah so uh this movie starts tammy is attending cheerleading practice and there's like a song like the introductory song is a song about a dinosaur that's playing while they're doing their cheerleading routine it's hilarious um but they're practicing their cheerleading routine and then michael Paul Walker walks into uh from football practice to watch the end of their little practice. So they finish, and you know, we find out that Michael and Tammy are dating. And as they leave the gym, they run into Denise's gay best friend Byron. And if you're wondering whoa, why whoa, whoa. I have in the 90s, wait, 90 what? 97? 94. 94. Wow. Gay best friend. Okay. Yes. Um, I mean, similar to Clueless-ish, but if you're wondering why I had to point out that he was gay, it's because it's a major plot point throughout this film. Yeah. Um, because the nineties were trash and this is maybe one of the only times you'll ever hear me say that because I did really love the nineties, but in this regard and the insane homophobia that was in the nineties, trash okay so they run into byron her best friend and he is meeting michael for the first time and he immediately approves he's like good job tammy like he you found a great one right (laughs) and they walk away waiting for my seal of approval yeah and they walk away and Tammy's like oh do you know Byron and Paul Walker's like I'm pretty sure everybody knows who Byron is <laughs> like he's the only gay kid in school like everyone knows who he is right that's that's pretty wow. much the gist of what we're getting um Tammy opens up her bag and she has a yellow a single yellow rose in her bag that Michael has left for her and Tammy tells Michael you shouldn't have done this you know you shouldn't do this if he ever finds it. Like, if he ever found out that you gave this to me, all hell would break loose, basically. And we don't know who she's talking about. And Michael's just like, I'm not scared of him. I don't give a fuck. I really like you. Like, deal with it. And he eats the rose. He's like, oh, well, you can't have it. Fine. And he takes a bite of the rose and she just laughs. And then the scene changes. It's fucking weird. But it comes back. It comes back, okay? Okay. <laughs> There's a reason I'm mentioning it, I promise. (laughs) So so they're walking away and they're just like chatting. Like they're not, 
holding hands. They're not kissing. They're not doing anything. They're just talking. And a couple of cars pull up uh, really aggressively and like 15 people pop out, like this gang of folks pop out. And one of the guys that ends up getting out is Tammy's ex-boyfriend. What's his name? Billy. So Tammy's ex-boyfriend, Billy, is super possessive and insane. So he sees Tammy talking to Michael and is immediately like, yo, get the fuck away from my girl. And Michael's just like, she's not your girl. She can hang out with whoever she wants. Like, you know, he, Michael's being very careful with his words at this point, not ever calling her his girlfriend, but is like, she doesn't want you like back the fuck up. You guys are not dating. Yeah. You're not dating. Like, and Billy- she can do whatever she wants and Billy is essentially um just machismo at this point like he is super aggressive and if she doesn't you know if she won't have me then she can't have anybody basically and he starts a fight with Michael and they get into a school fight and you know it's high school. So all the kids surround them in a big ass circle, yelling fight. And everyone's like, holy shit, this is crazy. They're beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. And the cops are called and the cops have to take Billy away because Billy has a restraining order. He's not allowed to be close to the school because of the restraining order, which is Mm. absurd to me. Because he doesn't spend any time in jail because he shows up in like the next fucking scene. It like wild. Okay. We apparently it was the 90s. We didn't take anything seriously. Like we yeah. still don't take shit seriously. No, I was say, unfortunately, it would probably be the same today. Yeah. So after this scene, we cut to a science lab or a not a not necessarily a science lab, but a big warehouse. And I need you to, I need to pause. Okay. Because if this is not this moment, then you can, then we can disregard this. Is, was that last fight the moment that they grab each other's crotches? Yes. Yes. I was trying. I was going to say, you're not going to gloss over that. There at no point am I myself (laughs) going to let you gloss over that fact that that happened okay 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 (laughs) this fight is happening okay we'll go back a minute i was gonna avoid it but fuck it (laughs) that was making me relive it so this fight is happening and billy this like punk little gang dude is trying to get the best of michael who is a legitimate football player like he still has his football pants and stuff on. Like he clearly just came from practice. Yeah. So they're fighting and whatever. And Billy can't see an out where he's going to win this fight. So as a last resort, he takes a full handful of Paul Walker's crotch and just squeezes. it. <laughs> and Paul Walker, you know, like any man would, he screams And then gets angry and is like, okay, two can play at that game. And he also grabs Billy's crotch and squeezes. So there are two high school dudes holding each other by the dick, seeing who can outman each other. 
and the cops show up and the cops are trying to get these kids to stop holding each other's dicks to stop this fight and the cops like okay i'm gonna count to three and they count to three and they they still don't let go right the cops have to pull these two kids off of each other right when they finally pull them off of each other billy falls to the ground in pain yeah like writhing in pain on the ground and michael just stands up and the cops look at him and are like what's the matter with you boy and michael just goes i still got a cup on amazing and like (laughs) walks away from the fight like nothing fucking happened i'm crying i'm like i'm legit yeah he tries to go talk to tammy but tammy doesn't want to hear any doesn't want to talk to him at all she's upset that he confronted billy that he even let billy get into it under his skin um and she doesn't want to have anything to do with it so she runs away she runs and like into the gym like don't fucking talk to me bye (laughs) end of that scene okay there's there's your dick grabbing scene sam (laughs) thank you i uh if i had to live through that once i guarantee that our listeners have to also listen through (laughs) and now you've had to live through it twice uh okay so i enjoyed every moment of it thank you so the next scene um opens on at night on a warehouse and inside this warehouse we see a rich guy and question mark his wife i don't know some like hot girl that's just on his arm and Mm. like a big bodyguard that's following them and he comes into this big warehouse and he starts um, ordering a guy up that's up in a control booth around. Show me this. Show me that. And then it pans over to this giant animatronic T-Rex. Stands probably 15 foot tall. It's similar to what you would see like if you've been to Universal Studios. If you've been on like the Jurassic yeah. Park ride, that T-Rex that kind of comes out and mimics biting you or whatever. It's similar Mm to that. Um, And this rich guy is, you know, ordering the control booth guy around. Okay, make its eyes move, make its teeth, you know, make its mouth open up and close. Show me its arms moving. And the guy in the computer booth is, you know, fucking around on his keyboard, making this T-Rex do all the things that the guy is telling him to. And the rich guy is like, hell yeah, it's doing all the shit I want it to do. What the last thing we have to do is make it sentient, basically. All we got to do is get it a brain. Basically, he has already come up with how. <laughs> He's already come up with the how. He's already created like this brain holder device that will that connects <laughs> that connects to the dinosaur that allow that would allow a brain to control it he just needs a brain right this is so amazing it's fucking insane okay (laughs) so that same night we pan back to michael and he's in his room brooding he's sad because tammy doesn't want anything to do with him and he calls tammy and he's trying to apologize and she's just like you know what? I overreacted earlier. I'm sorry for running away. 
um, come over right now, but don't let my parents see you. My room is the one above the garage. Like just don't let anyone see you. Cause I'm not trying to get in trouble cause they're in high school. Um, and it's 1994. And yeah. it's 1994. So he grabs a condom out of his, you know, they have to show he's being safe and thinking about sex. So he grabs a condom out of his fucking like drawers and gets dressed and goes over to Tammy's house. As, or when he gets there, Tammy yells down from the window and explains, you know, climb the trellis and then you'll get up into my room and it'll be great, right? As he's climbing the trellis, two girls from Billy's gang drive by in a Jeep and see him climbing in and they're trying to figure out what to do. And one of them suggests, oh, let's call her parents. Like, let's bust them because clearly that's not allowed. And the other girl, the like ringleader girl who clearly has a fucking thing for Billy is like, no, I have a better idea. Let's call Billy and tell him. So they do. So Michael and Tammy are up in her room, like making out. And Billy and his whole fucking gang show up to Tammy's house. And the dad sees that it's Billy outside the door and is the mom's like, call the cops. And the dad just like, no, it's just fucking Billy. I'll take care of him. I'll tell him what's what. And he opens the door and Billy rushes inside and the dad's trying to yell at him. And Billy's like, bro, I don't give a fuck. I'm going upstairs. Tammy immediately locks the door to her room and tells Michael, get the fuck out of here. Like, go out the window and get out because Billy will kill you. Like, he's a psychopath. Yeah. So even though Michael's not afraid of Billy, he understands Billy is crazy. So let's let's do this. So he gets out um, and Billy eventually breaks into her room and realizes michael's not there and sees michael's jacket on the floor and is like oh that bitch has been here and he looks out the window and he sees michael and is like fucking get him so they chase michael there's a this long ass chase scene and eventually they catch up to michael and hit him with a baseball bat oh assault okay and throw him in the trunk of billy's car oh kidnapping okay Oh, it just gets, it gets gets (laughs) great. So they drive and drive and drive and they break open a locked fence, like a, um, like a regular fucking fence that you would see anywhere, but they break the lock on the fence and open it up and they all drive in and they drive for a couple of minutes. So they're pretty far into whatever like locked area this is. And we're starting to see why this area was locked this is a big cat reserve so there are like panthers and cheetahs and grown full-ass lions in this place okay so billy is like okay stop they see a lion up ahead and they're like okay stop this is where we'll stop and they pull michael out of the trunk and Billy is hovering over him with the bat and he's like, you know, I could kill you right now, but I've been thinking about it and I don't think I will. And he basically forces Michael to say, thank you, 
basically for not killing him basically begging for his life right um but michael has no idea where he is right so billy's like yeah that's what i fucking thought basically and they get in their car and all of michael's gang turn around and leave leaving michael on this dirt road in the middle of this fucking big cat reserve great note that he's already bleeding because they already like beat him up with a baseball bat and shit okay Mm -hmm. so michael stands up and he's trying to get his bearings trying to figure out where the fuck he is and he sees an adult male lion like 10 yards in front of him and he's like what the fuck and then the lion the lion like opens its mouth to almost to growl but or to yawn and he's like oh shit this is fucking real and michael starts running away and the lion's just kind of following him and then he runs up into a tree to try and hide and in the tree is a panther so he gets out of the tree and while he's getting out of the tree he kind of falls and he's trying to get away as much as he can but the lion attacks him so he has severe wounds chest wounds from the lion and Mm -hmm. one of the rangers of this like cat reserve tranquilizes the lion and calls an ambulance and gets michael taken to the hospital Mm -hmm. so michael is in the hospital fucked up he's in a coma he's currently been in this coma for 15 hours and uh tammy and her best friend show up and they are um they're just distraught tammy and byron are like what the fuck like this is awful like hopefully he'll be up soon and whatever yeah then the scientist guy or not scientist guy the rich guy from earlier from the t-rex thing shows up at the hospital and he's looking for his friend some other doctor and after some rude comments to the front desk nurse he ends up going to find his doc this doctor guy and the doctor guy has told him about this patient he has told this other doctor basically that he is a an advanced neurosurgeon and like this world-renowned neurosurgeon and is going to be able to help fix like get this kid out of his coma basically this 15 year old out of his coma so the other doctor believes him and puts him into the room with uh, michael and tammy and byron and they start talking to tammy asking her questions you know trying to get quote a history about michael and tammy's telling them all you know as much as she knows and basically lets them know that uh michael does not have any immediate family he doesn't have any guardian like he's his only guardian is his uncle who's like a drunk he's like sitting in the chair sleeping because he's just drunk um and this is basically all the rich doctor guy needed to hear because now he has decided michael is the perfect candidate for brain placement in his t-rex the fact that <laughs> I'm sorry it's just like we had two distinctly different movies here we had a movie about 
toxic masculinity and abuse of women and like fucking wild ass you know young adult shit that they were having to deal with in the 90s like the fact that restraining orders don't work and um you know dropping uh you know a person off in a wildlife reserve and how the animals are not at fault for that you know they're not at fault for defending their territory we had an entirely different movie and then simultaneously the director slash writer quote unquote of this movie was like you know what this movie needs it needs us transplanting a dead person or comatose person's mind into a mechanical t-rex and having let me remind you let me remind you the whole reason this movie is being made is because (laughs) stumbled upon the opportunity to use a mechanical t-rex okay he wrote this entire movie with the centralized idea that this t-rex was the main plot point it's it's bananas it and, is bananas. Um, B-A-N-A-N-A-S is all I have to say. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this doctor, Dr. Watchenstein, and his nurse slash girlfriend, wife, whatever the fuck, Helga, uh, come in and they're, you know, they're talking to Tammy about his history and they're checking him over. He has uh, Helga check her, his vitals. And while Helga is checking his vitals, we see her place like a clamp thing on one of the wires that's checking his pull socks. And he flatlines because the wire is fucked up, right? So uh, after some just hilariously bad attempts at CPR and resuscitation, they declare him dead and Byron and Tammy both faint, like become hysterical and faint because their per- their friend has died. And um, Dr. Watchenstein and Helga put him on a stretcher and take him, quote, to the morgue, but they actually like load him into a car and take them to their warehouse. Um, in this scene, Paul Walker wakes up several times because he wasn't really like he wasn't in a severe coma he was just like in intense pain and coming off anesthesia critical condition yeah sure yeah so he he wakes up several times and they give him an anesthesia and they punch him several times to like make him fall back asleep like just knock him out so they go back to the warehouse and they perform this surgery where they cut open they cut off the top of his head like the whole cranium of his head and they just like pull his brain out wow well okay no let me start that over so before they take his brain (laughs) before they take his brain out they've already opened up his brain the doctor is showing off like the importance of the brain and all the cool things that the brain can do and he's like using these little rods to like poke different parts of the brain to show all the different parts of the body that they control. So he like touches one and it lifts, he like touches a part and it lifts a leg and he touches a part and it lifts a hand. And then he's like, and check this part out. And he sticks it in and Paul Walker gets a boner and he like wiggles it around and the boner starts flopping around. 
it is straight bananas like it's so fucking wild (laughs) (laughs) it's so wild oh my god (sighs) okay so now that we've gotten another dick joke out of the way um, (laughs) uh dr watchenstein or whatever the fuck his name is um he removes the brain like literally just takes his hands and grabs the brain out of this dude's head like oh no let's you know forget that brains are attached like you know to the spinal yeah, cord fine. and the everything's nervous. fine no it's yeah just, me touching it totally cool nothing free. will come awry it's, from it's this free. So he he grabs this brain out and he sticks it in his fucking like souped up punch bowl um <laughs> full of green goo uh green liquid and like cathodes and he attaches all his little things to this punch bowl um or to the brain and these wires are coming off the punch bowl to question mark the dinosaur and now the dinosaur is sentient it had it now has paul walker's brain michael's brain in it or the ability of michael's brain so i have questions okay the beginning of this when they were talking about the dinosaur this could be because i missed it and just wasn't paying enough attention is why i'm asking this question okay what is inside the dinosaur is it literally just mechanical yes okay so there's no like like biological makeup or like no there is chemicals that are running through it not real skin no it's all mechanical but they have figured out some sort of way to attach the mechanical body to the nervous system from his brain they don't go into a lot of detail they, they don't spend a lot of time explaining it but of that's they don't yeah they but wouldn't that's, the idea. But that's just not this is not real but um yeah okay so night yeah okay that that tracks with a 1994's understanding of how the brain and the body works but b <laughs> tracking with uh the entire makeup of this movie got it okay just needed to make sure that i had not missed something yeah so they hook up the brain and they get it to move like you know he he's poking at it getting it to move arms to move feet but it's still asleep it doesn't like the brain doesn't wake up the dinosaur right at this moment so the doctor's basically just like you know give it a little bit um we we will leave for the night when we come back you know in a few hours in the morning like it should have enough time to have become fully adjusted to all of the mechanics and it'll be cool. So he leaves the bodyguard there and the, um, the engineer guy, computer guy to just watch over the dinosaur essentially to make sure nothing weird happens and to be aware, like when it wakes up and he and the nurse go off to, you know, do whatever the fuck gross shit they're going to do. Um, they order a pizza because they haven't eaten all day. <laughs> Hell yeah. The uh, most relatable part of this video. 
Yeah, they order pizza, and then the science, the engineer guy is tasked with putting the cranium back on Paul Walker's body. So he like staple guns it back together and they have to take it back to the morgue, essentially. Like the two of them are being forced to take it back to the morgue so it can just be there so they don't get in trouble, don't get caught. Um, So that's their job. And while the, or the pizza guy comes and it's Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. What? Shut up. Shut up. Yeah. So when he filmed, when he was the pizza boy in this movie, he was 20. When he was in Napoleon Dynamite, he was 43. This is blowing my mind right now. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. I looked it up because I was like, that looks a lot like the guy from Napoleon. Dynamite. <laughs> but it can't be. My vote for Pedro shirt. Where did this come from? But I was like, but it can't be because that was like 13 years. Like <laughs> we're, we're all. That was exactly what I was thinking. I was like, what is he an infant? What are you talking about? Holy shit. I did not know he was in his forties in Napoleon Dynamite. Wow. No, or no, sorry. I'm, I can't math. He was 30. I mean, he was 33, 34, something like that. Something. It was significantly older than a high not, schooler. Yeah, I'll say it was definitely not high school. Yeah, yeah, he was he's very old. So he delivers a pizza. And when he comes in with the pizza, the T-Rex is like, he's yelling about pizza, pizza, because the other people are nowhere to be seen. And he, the, the T-Rex wakes up because he's a teenage boy. Who loves pizza, right? So hell the dinosaur, yeah, bruh. The dinosaur wakes up and starts moving and like looking at him, opening his mouth like mm, pizza and like kind of pointing to him. And understandably so, Pedro is like, nah, bro. Absolutely. And he drops the pizza and runs. Yes. So they hear from the other room they hear this the dinosaur growl and are like what the fuck did you make it do that and the scientists or the engineer guys like no i didn't do that let's go see what it was they go out they see the pizza they're like cool fuck it let's eat so they're eating pizza and the engineer guys basically just going on this rant about how the brain will never be better than his computers like there's no way that this teenage boy's brain will be able to control this dinosaur better than he can from his computers, which is kind of valid. Like it's literally a brain in a punch bowl and you're like, <laughs> it's the mechanics, it's, but it's, um, there's this weird dynamic going on here because on the one hand, yeah, no, you're totally right. Like, yeah, obviously I have more control with my computers. Like that just makes sense. On the other hand, there is this weird like 90s obsession here with the like the mysteries of neurology, the mysteries of the brain and like, wow, shit, what makes a human a human? The brain is just a big, huge supercomputer. Yeah, the late late 80s 80s and early 90s were obsessed with the idea of the brain being this like creepy sci-fi supercomputer I mean, which it is a supercomputer for sure, but it is exactly. Yeah. In like, 
insane creepy ways that they made it but trying to unpack that and all the mysteries involved with that maybe um involves endeavors that don't involve connecting it to an animatronic t-rex yeah exactly yeah so they are basically shit talking this dinosaur like the scientist idea the mad scientist idea of this dinosaur and paul walker the dinosaur gets upset and is like oh really let me show you all the ways that you're wrong shut up don't talk about my brain like that and somehow even though his brain is in a punch bowl in this lab he's able to freely walk around not connected to wires as a it it makes no sense okay they just said fuck it it makes zero sense it's like radio waves it's like they think that they've connected the brain to some sort of like radio frequency machine and the radio waves are like resonating in the dinosaur or something i'm giving it more credit than it has given me at this point oh absolutely (laughs) so uh sentient dinosaur michael um starts walking around and is like bro you don't you're not going to talk shit on me and eats the scientist or the engineer guy like bites him in half and throws him to the other side of the room the weightlifter guy bodyguard is just like what the fuck he like had left to go to the bathroom or something and he comes back and he's like what the fuck and he realizes the dinosaur is alive and moving and like tries to be tough and hard and realizes he can't do anything about it so he starts to run away and he runs out of the building and the dinosaur follows him and then steps on him squishing him flat hell yeah fuck that guy now (laughs) what i think is easily the best and worst part of this movie has to be the dinosaur moving okay so this <laughs> oh no oh god okay so this animatronic dinosaur it it can move its arms it can move its eyes it can open up its mouth it is very much like a thing you would see if you went to six flags and like walked through like a dinosaur exhibit like the top part of it can move and whatever but its bottom part its feet are planted flat right so for this movie the dinosaur that they used it is like you can tell at from all the shots that it is very clearly planted on a cart like this big giant cart that they are moving around as they're shooting things like sh- just showing the top half and its mouth moving while it's thing but then when they when they pan to its quote feet it is straight up feet from the show dinosaurs shut up <laughs> like it is the same <laughs> style like they're kind of floppy like it doesn't make sense but they're like kind of floppy <laughs> And the arms are very clearly like a person's arms. What? Like dinosaur gloves, like, and like plastic claw things on them. So every time, every time the dinosaur like does something with its claws to try and like prove that it's Michael or show some sort of humanity, it like reaches out with its Okay, T-Rexes, their tiny little arms, it like reaches out with its T-Rex arms and it's just like a huge ass, like human arm that's like patting somebody from way farther away than would actually work for a T-Rex. Right. 
It is hilariously bad. <laughs> hilariously God. bad. If I could find this movie on YouTube and just send you like a 10 second clip of this bitch Maybe walking around. Maybe this is actually why I was terrified of dinosaurs when I was a kid slash going into adulthood. Maybe the whole like Jurassic Park thing was just, I was already afraid of it because I had watched and absorbed Tammy and the T-Rex. Maybe because the dinosaurs that they show in um, Jurassic Park, the legs move like the full right. dinosaur moves. Right. The in this one, it's only the upper half. Wow. And every time they show the bottom, it is like just some shit show of a. It's horrible. Like from the TV show Dinosaurs, if you can remember what those feet look like from the TV show Dinosaurs, that's exactly what this shit looked like. It's a mess. That's amazing. So that those squishy ass feet. Ambitious, wild. Yeah. So this, those squishy ass feet, um, squish the fuck out of this bodybuilder. <laughs> and <laughs> Michael says peace to this fucking warehouse, and he leaves. Now this same night is a big party, big high school party. Um, that they. I mean, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We can move on in one second. You're I fine. just thought about this and the fact that I only just thought about this is obviously because I'm drinking for the first time in a while um t-rexes are huge Mm -hmm. why is this t-rex wandering around in a building and not just like decimating the entire building it's an empty warehouse so it's tall and the built the doors for it that he like pushed open um, are like big barn yeah, doors. Guess. They're they're tall barn doors, and he is not. So while he is a T Rex, I don't know that he is a T Rex to scale. To scale, got yeah. it. Okay, so, that so, was that was the gist of my question, and that answers my question. Okay, we're we're smaller than actual T Rex scale, yeah. but he's still large. So. From what I can, like, they keep showing, they make him appear bigger than he is. But when they do show him with Tammy, um, my guess would be if he stood straight up, like normal on his haunches, full up, he would probably rest around 15 feet tall. Oh, that is so small for a T-Rex. Okay. Got yeah. It. So, so he's large. But not right. actual dinosaurs. Not size. actually to scale, for sure. Yes. Okay, I just needed, for some reason, I had not, it had not super fully penetrated no, into my brain right at this moment. Fair. Okay. So he leaves um, and he is searching. He needs to find Tammy, basically. He knows that the only way that, that the only person who will understand who he is, the only person he can explain it to that maybe he can explain it to about what happened is Tammy. Yeah. So he goes to this high school party, which they had talked about at the beginning of the movie, um, this big party that was coming up. And for some reason that doesn't make any fucking sense, she was at this party, even though her boyfriend just died like the day before. You gotta show up, man. Yeah. Social social hierarchy is everything. But she was so 
just depressed and sad like absolutely and how is anyone gonna know how depressed and sad she is if she doesn't show up to that party man (laughs) fair (laughs) (laughs) so her and byron are at this party and they're hanging out getting drunk drinking everyone's you know partying having a good time and then billy shows up of course because it's fucking billy and when billy shows up he has a bone to pick with uh tammy because previously i forgot to mention this in the hospital scene right before the doctors show up billy shows up for what we don't know maybe to finish the job with michael or say, to, to like further sorry second murder charge. i don't Who know the fuck knows but he shows up with one of his goons and in this moment in the hospital tammy's like nah bitch like look what you did to him i'm fucking done with you go fuck yourself and he slaps her oh hell no oh god and billy billy's basically like bitch you'll do what i say when i say it and she's like "Uh, no and she kicks him in the nuts hell yeah girl that's right him in the nuts and grabs his like chest with her nails like just sinks her nails into his chest and the his like lackey following behind him uh tries to step in and byron is like bitch i'll scratch the fuck out of you and he pulls up his nails and he's like let's fucking go and so then they run off right so now at this party now at this party billy has a bone to pick because you know she stood up for herself yeah for sure because she stood up for herself so he starts making a beeline over to her and she's just like bitch no i hate you you killed my boyfriend. I don't want anything to do with you. Go fuck yourself. And he basically Ugh. tells her to go fuck herself. And they have an argument and she storms off and leaves the party. Yeah. Okay. He stays at the party, but the slutty girl who was the one who called him, like she's like the head slut of the gang that he's yeah. the leader of. She is like, hey like let's dance and they start dancing and then she's like you know what let's fuck and they go off to a car and they start having sex then michael rolls up full t-rex michael shows up to this party and he's kind (laughs) of he's watching like it's it's this big like out in the country type party right so there's no one can see anything that's happening oh god so he stumbles upon billy and this girl first because they're on the outskirts, like out in a car. And she, the girl <laughs> looks up and sees the dinosaur and starts screaming. And Billy <laughs> oh, thinks no. she's coming. And then the dinosaur, the T-Rex, grabs her by the leg and yanks her out of the car. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, and rips her leg off and is like, bitch. And then Billy runs away because he's a bitch. Okay. Yeah. He comes into the, he starts yelling through the party. Oh my God, there's a dinosaur here. Everyone, you need to run. There's a dinosaur. And 
you know, Michael's coming, he's falling. And he everyone is like, what the fuck are you talking about? He just are wants to get a Billy. And then drive. everybody sees the dinosaur and they start freaking out and trying to run. Oh okay. Michael catches up to Billy at like at the stairs, essentially, or close. And he rips Billy's head off. Hell yeah. Yeah. So Good. Billy dies. Michael continues walking around and stomps on two members of Billy's gang that have fallen on the ground and finds Byron and recognizes Byron and with his little T-Rex arms lifts lifts Byron up to a standing position. No, he doesn't. And dusts his shoulders off. (laughs) And let's Byron go. Incorrect. You have pressed an incorrect key. There's no fucking way a T-Rex has the dexterity to do any of that. With Let's a human go. brain, he might. Oh, I'm With a human oh, brain, God. he might, Sam. You don't know. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. So he keeps leaving this party. He sees uh, two more members of Billy's gang hide underneath a car. And he's like, oh, well, fuck those guys and stands on top of the car and squashes them to death. So yeah. literally carnage everywhere at this fucking party. Like everyone's fucking dead. Oh, yeah. This is, could this arguably be a horror movie? Absolutely. Hell yeah. Oh, I'm so here to listen to this be talked about as a horror movie on the fucking spooky movie squad. Y'all gotta fucking watch it. I'm just saying. We'll have to have like a dinosaur month and I will for sure make everybody watch this movie. Hell yeah, bitch. (laughs) Okay, so they get a phone call or the cops arrive on scene basically because someone has had the sense to call the cops and the two cops from before and the sheriff show up and we find out here that the sheriff is byron's dad now byron is attempting to explain what happened to his dad and he just keeps reiterating you aren't gonna believe me like you won't believe any of this story it doesn't make any fucking sense and the dad's just like you know what are you doing here blah blah blah. and byron's explaining you know i it's if this was a party i was at the party then this dinosaur showed up and he started chaos and then he picked me up and he brushed my shoulders off and let me go and the dad is just like yo you're fucking wackadoodle and the dad starts walking around and taking drugs yeah yeah so the dad so the dad and the other the two other officers start walking around and uncovering bodies right the two underneath the car the billy the two other guys that got stomped like all these different bodies and they're like fuck we got to call more cops out here we got to get the ambulances out here and you know there's a one-legged girl over there like we got to call everybody because this shit is fucking wild so the cops are dealing with that and byron's just like you know what fuck it bye so (laughs) hey so he goes he like goes and finds somewhere to sleep like some random barn right and then he The next day he wakes up and he goes to Tammy's house and he 
goes to her window and he safely kidnaps her in his mouth. Right. Um, and he brings her to the barn. Basically, she like passed the fuck out because she was traumatized by seeing a fucking dinosaur, right? Yeah, and being in its mouth. Sure. Yeah. So she takes or they're in this barn together, Tammy and the dinosaur. And Tammy wakes up. And the dinosaur is trying to explain to her that he is Michael. And he's trying to get her to understand who he is. And he pulls out a rose with his little hands. And he's, she's like, uh, okay, a rose. And then he bites it like he did at the beginning of the movie. And she's like, okay, like Michael? And then the dinosaur was like, yeah, like me. And he tries, starts explaining and he points to like, you know, they play basically charades until she figures out Michael's brain is in the dinosaur, right? And she's just like, (laughs) she's overwhelmed with emotion. She's incredibly happy. She hugs the dinosaur and is just like, oh my God, I I didn't think I'd ever see you again. I thought I had lost you, blah, 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 you know. The, the things you do when you are missing someone. Right. And you find out that they're a T-Rex now. Got it. <laughs> yes. So she comes back. Or no, the, what is it? The dad goes to the room, goes to her room and finds it just fucked up. Right. Because the dinosaur had kidnapped her. So everything in her room is yeah. Right absolutely for sure and he calls the cops and of course it's the same (laughs) cops it's the same cops like the sheriff and the two other cops who i need to point out those two other cops are homophobes and okay incredible homophobes the entire movie so interesting because wait wasn't byron's dad the sheriff or the captain or whatever so so there's there's three cops total that keep showing up to things there's the sheriff that is Byron's dad. And then yeah. the two cops that showed up at the beginning to break up the fight. They're like two oh, older wow. cops. And these How two do they older feel cops. About their captain? They don't care. They, they don't address it. Okay. They don't address it with the captain. They just keep making homophobic remarks about Byron okay. every time he's in a scene. Okay. Yeah. Like insanely inappropriate comments about a there we go i was one i was wondering how 1994 was gonna rear its head when it came yeah, to yeah. Byron. So, got it so the reason i had to emphasize at the beginning that byron is gay because that's a fucking plot point is yeah. because these officers keep making underhanded remarks every time he's on the screen or every yeah. time he comes into the scene so like you know they'll throw out a oh watch your buttholes or something like that like right it is obnoxious and absurd and it was okay. done probably for comedy but it's of course yeah absolutely it's supposed to be <laughs> of course because that's what you have to do anytime a gay person walks in you gotta guard your butthole because they're just gonna like tear up those buttholes right yeah. yeah it's not funny at all and honestly if they had taken out those two officers for this whole movie it would have made this movie like 10 times better because there'd be no homophobia at all like everyone was fine with byron the only other like slight jab of homophobia was like at the very beginning when Paul Walker was like, oh, everyone knows Byron. Like, right. 
because yeah of course you did like the one gay token gay guy yeah exactly i know exactly who he is he's the only gay person here got it yeah yeah so fucking mess so anyways the dad calls the cops because tammy is missing he doesn't know where tammy is and her room's wrecked so the three cops show up and also byron like he rolls up because it's tammy like his best friend and tammy strolls in like from the backyard and she's super happy and smiling like she's just elated and just had sex with a (laughs) t-rex got it she's (laughs) she's super happy and byron like pulls her aside like yo tammy what the fuck and he's like she just explains like the t-rex is michael and by it clicks in byron's head (laughs) it clicks in Byron's head like oh that actually explains a whole fucking lot like I swore that T-Rex recognized me at the party last night it makes sense that he would have like picked me up and brushed me off like that god (laughs) say no more say no more girl I got you say no more we team dinosaur now I got it absolutely yeah Byron's ride or die for Tammy and I love it <laughs> so you know what? That's fair. That is a fair criticism of him. He's <sighs> ride or die for his BFF, and I can I can appreciate that. I was going to make a comment of like, no, no, what happens here when your BFF tells you my dead boyfriend is now in an animatronic T Rex oh, that yeah. murdered a bunch of people? You go. Oh no. And you turn her in to oh yes. Psychiatrist. Yes. There's two but- ways this can go. And it's <laughs> and the two ways are either ride or die forever, like let's go, Tammy, and deal with this wacky shit in our lives, or two, sassy, uh, sassy gay friend. Oh honey. Like, oh honey. I, I hope they I hope they figure out your problems. Yeah, honey, no. You are absolutely going to right now. Yeah, honey, no, you're insane. So Byron's, you know, this has clicked with Byron. He's like, I get it. Yes. Like, let's figure out a way to get, to fix this. And the cops are just like, you know, this is again, we're looking for a dinosaur question mark. Like this doesn't make any sense, but that's all we've got right now. So they, you know, they leave, everything goes away. Um, the, mad scientist and helga are also looking for michael because that's their prized dinosaur like this i I bet they are it's missing yeah yeah they need to find their missing dinosaurs so of course the scientist realizes oh well where would he go where would a teenage boy who has nothing else go clearly his girlfriend's house so we just got to follow the girlfriend and we'll figure it out right yep so the next day uh tammy is back at the barn um thing where michael is hanging out and they're you know spending some time together and then byron rides his bike out there to go meet them and like hang out kind of figure out what's going on get this you know figure it out well the cops the two cops that are fucking assholes 
and the sh- no the two cops are following byron they're like tailing byron because they know that byron is going to lead them to the girl and the girl has something to do with it like something was off yesterday we got to figure this out so they tail byron basically and see him go into the barn and they call for backup and then like fucking 50 cops show up right and there's helicopters out here the mad scientist shows up because he was also following byron um and all of these people are here in this situation and um tammy and byron come out waving a white flag and attempt to explain the situation. They are trying to explain that Michael's brain has been like removed and put into this brain or this person's brain Um, or into this T-Rex. And, ooh, I forgot like a major plot point. That's fine. I'll get back to it, I guess. And they're trying to explain (laughs) it and they can't. Meanwhile, like the rest of the day of the previous day, Tammy and Byron spent their time in the morgue searching for a new body for Michael's brain. Oh, Jesus. Because Michael's body is now deteriorated, like it's wrecked. So they are in the morgue searching for a new body to put this brain in and with no luck. Oh, God. Yeah. So they roll up to the end or they get to this point where all the cops are there and they're trying to explain the situation and nobody is listening. Basically, the cops basically take Byron and uh, Tammy into custody. They're holding them and the scientists roll up and he's like, that's my dinosaur. Like I did all the work. It belongs to me. Yeah, that's my dinosaur. Um, and he says that he can, um, tranquilize it. He has a special tranquilizer gun that will work on it and blah, 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 blah. And Byron's like, wait, you just said it was a mechanical dinosaur. How's a tranquilizer going to work on it? Tranquilizer gun? Question mark, question mark. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of fumbles for a second and the scientist guy's like, oh, well, it's a brand new technology. That only works on this specific mechanical thing and blah, blah, blah. So the cops believe him because he's an adult in this situation. And you've uh, pressed another incorrect key, but okay. <laughs> yeah, they try, they try shooting it with the tranquilizer and the T-Rex is just like, bitch, no. And he kills... <laughs> Yeah, he kills the mad scientist guy. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So then the I'm cop- ride or die. I'm like Byron right now. I had two choices and my choice is ride or die with the story because I have no other choice. So. Yes. So then the cops are like, oh, well, he that T-Rex just murdered a dude, open fire. So they shoot the fuck out of this T-Rex and Tammy has yep. to watch her the love of her life die again wow but how but how but how does but how does fire gunfire it goes down okay the t-rex is down for the count (laughs) 
Okay. She was so ready for that. Y'all didn't see the face, but she was <laughs> the demeanor, but she was so ready for that. She the T-Rex. The T-Rex is down for the count, okay? <laughs> so Tammy is distraught. Byron is distraught. Everyone is like, that's fucked up. Tammy runs to uh, to the T-Rex and is just like cuddling it. And everyone realizes like, oh shit, we did something fucking weird. Like something was up here. Like maybe we should have listened to her. Um, And then that scene ends it cuts to black for a second and then opens on another scene tammy is getting home from school she wishes you know she says hello to her mom and dad and she runs up to her room and her mom makes a comment about how she's happy to see her daughter so happy and the dad makes a comment like yeah i just don't think it's right that he's up there and then we see tammy's room now in Tammy's room, she walks in, she has a computer that she boots up and she has Michael's brain in a bowl, in the same bowl from earlier uh, with the little nodes and things in it connected to this computer and to a camera. So now he has eyes and he has a voice and he has all these different things. So he's able to see her and communicate with her via this camcorder and this computer and they have a small conversation about how much he missed her today while she was at school and then she asks if he wants the usual and he says of course so she pours a shot of alcohol on top of his brain to get him drunk leaves to the bathroom to get changed into some lingerie and then does a strip tease and then the movie ends I had projected a lot of potential <laughs> endings for this movie. But I know that wasn't one of them. It was not. It was not. And you know what? I commend this movie for that. That the, At every turn, there was an expectation. And at every turn in this movie, yeah. you have to hand it to it. Yeah. It defied that expectation and said, did you think this was never a possibility? Did you even consider this as a potential possibility at all? No, that's what it is. Yeah. And it went there. Part of their, part of their conversation was her mentioning that she is going to go to a morgue in another city to keep looking for bodies for him okay okay sure yeah yeah all right yeah resurrection (laughs) just just fuck science fuck fuck like f i mean this you know what science in 1994 i i oh god i'm so sorry I'm so sorry for the real scientists that lived in 1994. Before we knew, before we knew how things worked, the possibilities for how things worked were endless. Endless. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the criticism right there. Yeah. Okay. So you asked about this film being a horror film. Um, The original rating for this film was R-rated comedy horror. 
Um, but all of the gore scenes were removed and there is a lot of gore scenes. Like this dinosaur just fucking went on a rampage. Um, all the gore scenes were removed from the initial American release in order to appeal to family audiences because you know who likes dinosaurs? Kids like dinosaurs. Right. Um, which is probably how I saw this movie because I don't remember like a bunch of people getting eaten up and like, I remember people dying, but I don't remember yeah. seeing like, blood and guts and stuff yeah yeah exactly yeah but that was definitely in this movie the version i just watched um which was re-released um or restored and theatrically released um in 2019 and um is currently on dvd and blu-ray and blu-ray 4k blu-ray combo packs so if you're interested in this movie that's the way to go i tried finding it to stream and it only, I think it was only on Hulu and only if you had like a premium, one of the premium channel packages. Yeah, this movie is wild and you should check it out. <laughs> um, but don't, if you get the uncut version, don't watch the uncut version with kids because it's wild. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. So uh, only watch the PG version with kids, but this movie... Um, is very 1994 like not not only the styles and stuff but like the homophobia the like ownership that billy feels over tammy and just the grossness of the toxic masculinity in this film is a lot so yeah but you get to see a really young Denise Richards and a really young Paul Walker. So that's cool. So, yeah, um, I think my biggest thing on this is there was, there was a very, very different film to be had here without the T-Rex on it, right? Mm-hmm. This could have been a zombie flick. This could have been, um, you know, even like a transplanted body flick. Yeah. The fact that it is an anim- animatronic T-Rex puts it just so far beyond the realm of like acceptably badly made, you know? Yeah. There are lots of badly made movies nowadays that are cult favorites because of the goodness and the like important things that they cover and just the nostalgia purposes of them. And there's just this fine line that they all walk when it comes to just like how outrageous is too outrageous and the like animatronic, (laughs) not even to scale, not even scientifically adequately addressed instance of a, of a T-Rex, of a mechanic T-Rex with a human brain. And then even at the end, the, the, the end being that the human brain is now connected to some sort of computer that is making it still sentient. And we're still looking for a body to transplant it to is, wow, there's, there's a darkness on the end of that, which I don't know if they were aware of when they made this. 
I honestly, because this was very on brand for the 90s, feel like they thought that this was like a quirky, ironic ending to the movie and not the like bleak ending that it really is. Yeah. Because there's so much to unpack in that, that she's not going to move on from this dead man. The man is dead. His body's yeah. not coming back. And that I'm going to find a body of someone who's recently deceased that has nothing to do with me, that the family and the loved ones of that person don't care, don't matter. Oh, a lot to unpack in that. And that that was considered something that would be a quirky ending to the movie is something to unpack there. Yeah, Yeah, it's a lot um (laughs) they definitely like this because it's comedy horror like you really cannot take any of it too too seriously um but given the time that's passed between when this movie came out and all of the films that have come in between it if this film were to be made today the science behind what is happening would change a lot um, yeah. And just the way they approach even keeping the brain on, like, at the end of the movie, when she just has it in a bowl with the, the diode sticking out, like, that wouldn't be how it's kept. It would be kept, you know, in a clean environment, you know, as clean as possible in a exactly. glass case, you know, you know, to prevent contaminants, to prevent all these different things. Because exactly. Yeah, it just Our brain is infected so hard. Yeah. Yeah. It would it would be a much I want to say a much different movie, but it probably wouldn't be that different. Right, because the intent of the director slash writer slash yeah. creator, yeah, is very important. No, but you bring a you bring up a good idea. You bring up a good point, I should say, about the genre. Because, yeah, of course, um, you know, any sort of comedy, whether it is a comedy, horror, or, excuse me, any sort of horror, whether it is a comedy, horror, or, you know, any sort of the subsets of genre of horror, right? It is supposed to leave you ultimately horrified at the end of it, whether or not it has a quote-unquote happy ending or, you know, or hopeful ending or anything like that. That is a good point. I do think that there is this weird, like, there's this weird knockoff energy on it. Like, I feel like this movie thought that it was in the realm of King Kong or Godzilla. You know what I'm saying? Godzilla in the sense of, I'm just going to smash everything. King Kong in the sense of, but there's this one person that is human that I love and that I will do anything for and that that person loves me even though I'm not a human and yeah yeah kind of I don't know once he is sentient the t-rex doesn't actually try to kill everyone he's only out to get the scientists who fucked with him and Billy's gang who murdered him in the first place so, like, there were a bunch of other people at the party, but he didn't mess with them at all. He only went after, like, he specifically targeted Billy's gang. 
So but his presence is terrifying. And I mean, witnessing murder is traumatizing. Oh, yeah. I feel like for me personally, witnessing murder via T-Rex would be much less traumatizing than witnessing murder like with a gun. Because sure. like, Fair. like animals gonna animal. Yeah. Like you can't fault, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning of the movie, you can't fault a lion for attacking something in its enclosure like you're right yeah yeah that's a good argument it's wild like i don't want to see anyone get eaten alive by an animal but but to counter argument that it's supposed to be an animal with a human brain the whole concept of this movie is and you know what yes i am absolutely giving tammy and the t-rex the f movie too much credit here with its creation but that but the component is that it is definitely a quote-unquote wild being oh yeah but it is a wild being with a human brain attached yeah the the real question is when he gets his brain back into a body is he a murder like is he a rampaging that's murderer? the movie i want to fucking see like honestly forget the t-rex i want to see the movie of the the background that informs their relationship can be part of that movie and then the rest of the movie is him in somebody else's body and transversing yeah. that yeah dealing you know dealing with the atrocities that he implemented while he was in a t-rex body like he murdered like 15 folks for for Um, sure yeah and you know who's to say if he would have done that had he been he died horrendously he died in a lot of pain yeah but does he regret killing those people does he think about it does he still does he have a weird obsession and need to kill now is he yeah. better off as a computer? What, like, what? Yeah, great. There we go. That's another thing that is a very horror trope. The transition from I was a fully alive individual and now I'm still alive, but I fundamentally have changed somehow within the transition of technically the other form of me died. There's usually a transition that goes along with that transformation. Yeah, for sure. Um god damn it i had a train of thought and i lost it sorry no no you don't need to be sorry it is literally just me but it was a good one and i have to think of it jump on that um, dinosaur train <laughs> jump on that dinosaur train god damn it what was my point it was all about like transposing bodies minds into different bodies shit i gotta plug this in um I don't really understand how they think it's going to work. Like, I don't, clearly Tammy has failed biology and Byron and Michael because they are searching through morgues for bodies when they really need to be searching through hospitals for brain dead folk. Right. My, my connection was this is a big trope that is still relevant in the in the early 90s for sure it becomes relevant again a little later but it had its heyday actually in the like 50s 60s early 70s with the like it's the body snatchers mentality it's the idea of i'm transposing 
the consciousness into a different host. And um, that, it falls definitely under horror tropes in that regard. And um, there's this just weird cognitive dissonance. I guess maybe that's not the right terminology here, but there's just this weird, like we're getting into the age, we're, we're beginning to enter the age of like hard technology advancement in the early 90s. And this fear that we've had for decades at this point of, you know, what does it feel like if your body is taken over by something that is not you? right? Whether it is another human, whether it is an alien, whether it is a robot or whatever it is. And what is the word I'm looking for? Like, um, like excusing away of it, as long as the protagonists within the story are okay with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not okay in this movie that Michael's brain is taken and put into a t-rex that's not okay oh for sure really like one of the points of the movie that it doesn't fit it's not okay yeah and at the end of the the movie one of the quote-unquote happier pieces of the ending is we're still looking for a body that will fit you yeah right and it's like okay well that body still belonged to some other person and first of all, whether or not that person is still alive or not, that body has some sacred body rights and body autonomy. Did that person say they were cool with somebody else living in their body if they were dead? No. Well, there's a problem with that. What about their loved ones? Do they consent to that? And it reminds me, honestly, of like, um, if you never read, we, we did on this podcast, um, a huge Stephanie Meyer series, but Stephanie Meyer has not only written the Twilight Saga, she wrote The Host, which was um, a very interesting story. In my opinion, me personally reading it, it was very suspenseful, very interesting, very good. And then we hit the end and the ending, I was actually so upset that I was I contemplated giving the book away and then I've been I, there. and I ultimately kept it, but the ending was so, and I mean the actual, like within the last out of hundreds of pages within the last 20 pages, part of the ending, I was like, wow, fuck this. I, I did not sign up for this was yeah. my reaction that was me reading Hunger Games 3. So just a spoiler alert, the host, if you've never read it, the this whole story has been about body. It's, been, it's invasion of the body snatchers, except from a romantic Stephanie Meyer point of view. Let's just get that out of the way for that yeah. story. And the whole part, the whole point of the story is the alien that is invading this body of this young woman the young woman's consciousness is so much still present in the body that she has a hard time reconciling her own wants and desires with the body. And she accepts that, that 
host body, the person that she's inhabiting should absolutely have their own wants and needs and desires met. And that it is fundamentally morally wrong for her to be inhabiting this body. And that it's okay that she gives this body up because the person in this body is a whole ass recognizable person and everything's great. And then we get to the ending where she has given the body up so that the original soul within the body can take control of its own body back. And they love her so much because they have gotten to know this alien being so much. They love her so much that they search around. They like keep the the little alien host like safe and like on ice or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they search around and they capture and essentially not murder, but might as well be murder a younger um, other person to put this alien back into to take over their body instead because it's a it's a good fit for her it's a good fit for her it looks like she would look and um it acts like she would act and the person was just not very aware of their surroundings and like yeah everything is great now and now she can be in a real body again and um she can have her love interest actually have a real human body again that is not the other person's love interest and it was like no 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 you fundamentally like go- went against everything that was the important part of this of this story which is that she doesn't have a right to be here she needs her own body <laughs> like she needs to be away from earth she doesn't need to be here in in earth world and like living among you she needs to like go off and be living her own life in her own celestial wherever it is circumstance that doesn't involve taking over another consciously aware being's body and it just like fully negates that and it feels very much here in this same instance. And I know, I know you don't have to tell me. I know you're talking about it. And I know you don't have to tell me that I'm reading too much into Tammy and the fucking T-Rex. But fuck you. I'm going to do it. it. It feels very much here that that's this kind of ending that like, it's all fucked up. It's fucked up that he got murdered and it's fucked up that he then got used. His brain and body got used for some other person's purposes that have nothing to do with him. And what he deserves is to rest. And if he wants to be, you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna say here, if you really, really, really just want the cutesy, kitschy little ending where what's her ass Denise Richards character Tammy gets to be with Michael in the end, okay find a body where the where the body was brain dead supernatural does a great moment in like the i'm talking about a tv show here there's a moment where one of the like demons of that body or excuse me of that season story series 
gets into a body and it effectively eliminates the moral concerns because it makes it aware in the narrative for anyone watching the body that I just inhabited was a brain dead human. That person was never coming back. This body is no longer that person's body. It does not matter. That person's soul was never coming back to this person's body. Yeah. So the well, that's why jumps into that body and and habilitates it. That's and why it they're looking like- in morgues in this in this movie. They're they're searching through morgues for a a potential body for his brain to be in. Sure. Um, my problem with that, with them searching through morgues at the end, is that mo- a dead body wouldn't work because he needs yeah. alive organs. My complaint is, my personal complaint is that he needs to be searching for people who are brain dead, which then is a whole like, oh, well, this person, you know, has family, has whatever. Like, it's all fucked up. The whole All of it is fucked up. up. But I'm saying it's more morally acceptable in that instance to look for that exact thing. And I feel like there's just this weird bait and switch at the end of this movie where it's just like, oh no, it's only wrong because they tried to put you in a mechanical T-Rex. And it's like, no, no, it's wrong on fundamentally so many other levels other than just, I put your brain into a T-Rex. It's wrong because like, I don't have rights to your body. It's wrong because you're dead and like, you don't need to continue to be living. It's wrong because of just so many other things. And, and not the least of which is that Tammy is just like super cool with like taking somebody else's body, regardless of the loved ones of that person, you know? Well, but I'm Tammy is at least in Tammy has had a lot of problems. Like she dealt with an emotionally, physically abusive boyfriend and then her new good boyfriend got murdered and then she was in love with a T-Rex. So Tammy's all over the place. Fair. It is very fair. All of your uh, criticisms are fair. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> I agree. It's all it's all a moral gray area and just horrible, horrible situation. But yeah, that's what you get when you watch it. Anyway, that was my only big ass point that I wanted to point out for this. Yeah. Yeah. Moral quandaries of comedy horror films of 1994. That's a whole dissertation. Yeah. And this is me literally actively avoiding talking about their handling of homosexuality in this story because we could have an entire other podcast about it. Yeah. But what uh, I actually really liked about this film and the way that they dealt with homosexuality is that none of the other students said a damn thing or gave a fuck. It's only the older people. I actually do like that. I it's, do like it's that. only the two old cops. Nobody else seems to give a fuck. Like, yeah. Aside from Paul Walker's like one comment, like, haha, everybody knows Byron. It wasn't like, ew, he's gross. It was just like, right. oh yeah, everyone knows who like, he is. Yeah, he's gay. It's it's an anomaly here, which is not unheard of. Like, t- especially for wherever they are, I'm sure they're supposed to be in like, you know picturesque america they're in la like 
you have a token gay person and it's like everyone would know who that token gay person was in 1994 but you're exactly right the handling of it is what matters and yeah the only people who handle it badly are the older generation in this movie yeah which is still happening now so yeah yeah i think that is literally the point of this episode we found it that we found the the thing that that ties these two pieces together which is that the older you get as generations pass you become less and less accepting of the newer generations which is just fundamentally absurd because they're still fighting the same things that you're fighting and critical thinking skills means that you should always be open to change regardless of how old you are yeah yeah Change is not bad. Okay. All right. You want to go first? Yes. For Fahrenheit 451, we have critical thinking is the foundation of democracy. Very nice. I got burning books in attempt to kill thought. Excellent. Love it. We were so serious in those ones. I know. Actual synopses. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For Tammy and the D-Rex, I have toxic masculinity will never get the partner. That's accurate. That's, never. You think it true. will, and it literally is always going to lead into folly. Yeah. Okay. I've got a implate. It, wow. I've got implant <laughs> implant brain to make sentient T-Rex. Okay. <laughs> I love it. This may be my favorite that you ever made. <laughs> okay. That just describes the entire last like 30 minutes of that movie. <laughs> yeah. That's it amazing. just gets so okay. fucking wild. Like. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't even mention there's like a car chase thing that happens where the T-Rex is in the back of a truck and they're like trying to outrun the cops. It's wild. That's amazing. All right. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you are interested in following more of this show or checking out any of the other awesome shows we have here on the Allentown Presents Network, you can check us out on Twitter at Allentown Pod. Um, If you want to suggest a book or movie for us to cover or have questions or want to say hi, you can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Allentown Presents. The best way to support our show is by liking, following, subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. Following, rating, and reviewing helps small podcasts like us spread and get the word out. The other best way to support us is by recommending us to people you know whom you think may enjoy it. Uh, We'd like to thank our icon artist, Susan Dorda. Susan, I would never make uh your art uh unaccessible to people in libraries because that is very very important and i would also never take your brain and put it into an animatronic dinosaur because i love you so much i love you but i kind of would put your brain into a dinosaur because i'd like to see a dinosaur graphic design oh my god that would be i think that'd be fucking cool (laughs) 
That would be amazing. Actually, <laughs> Susan might love sorry, that. Sorry, Susan. I'm sorry, Hold Susan. On. I might have to like tend my answer and like pull her for that. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I just am curious about dinosaurs doing things. I think it'd be cool. Um, <laughs> but you can check out Susan Dorda's artwork at susandorda.com. That's S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. It's been real. Keep it lit. Bye. Bye.